Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Welcome again, fans of the tech age. Come on out of your murky, damp caves and join us on the couch for another Tech Talk as we herald in the new year. Happy 2022, Matthew Dickerson. Now tell us, amongst all the COVID-safe celebrations, what distracted you this week? Well, I'm pretty excited, actually. I'm going to call this season two. Yeah. Everything so far has been season one, and we're building up the episode numbers. We're there. But I think 2022 is a good enough reason to move to season two, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course. So it's not a full well, year we've been doing it, but it's the no, it doesn't next need to be. calendar year. Yeah, so next that's calendar good year, that's, that's a new season. So season two. That's right. That's, yeah, that's pretty exciting. I'd make sure <laughs> about that. So what better way to get season two started than trawling through all of the episodes from season one and picking out the highlights? We had 40 episodes in season one with over 360 separate tech stories for a total of more than 26 hours of tech listening pleasure. Once the podcast started, just like calling 1194, you could rely on the delivery of a new episode at precisely 9am every Monday morning without fail. We recorded most of the episodes in a studio, but COVID-19 presented some isolation challenges. So we had to record several episodes via video conference with some different methodologies tried, and we even experimented with walking on river trails while talking tech. We did receive a few strange looks as we walked side by side along the river discussing a variety of tech topics. For your listening pleasure, here are 29 tech stories from Season 1 as the excitement builds for what Season 2 will bring. Are you sick of punctures in your bike tyres? Well, apparently NASA has a solution. Matt, tell us more. Well, it's interesting, James, because I used to ride BMX bikes everywhere when I was a kid, and it'd be great, you'd be riding out, you have all that freedom, and then you'd inevitably be pushing it home all those kilometres that you'd ridden out, going out somewhere with some punch on your bike. And a kid came along one day with solid rubber tyres, and we thought that was fantastic, but they were so heavy, and they just didn't give it all, so that didn't go anywhere. But NASA has this little problem that they have. When they send a rover, for example, off to maybe Mars, and they've sent five out there so far, then they don't really want to get a puncture out there because there's no, no real puncture repair kits the rover can take care of itself. And you can imagine there's no bike repair shop just around the corner to duck into. Yeah, it's really inconvenient, isn't it? It is a bit inconvenient for them. It's a couple of kilometres away. So they've come up with this concept with nickel and titanium combined to come up with a, a product called Nicanol. And the idea of it is that it actually gives a lot more than a normal metal would. So if you take, for example, steel, it only deforms about 0.5% before the deformation is permanent. So it's not much good on a tyre that you want to give a little bit, where Nicanol will actually give about 10% before that deformation is permanent. So the tyre can actually move like a tyre, pneumatic tyre would normally, and come back to its original position. Sorry, so you're saying this metal has a memory and it can restore its old shape so it can run like a normal rubber tyre. That's exactly right, as long as it's no more than 10%. And you think about a normal tyre, you're not hitting bumps that's deforming the rubber on a tyre 100%. It's only going in a little bit just to have a bit of give in that tyre. So, yeah, absolutely incredible. It is a memory alloy. It's known as an SMA. So the idea is that you put that on the rover and away it goes. But now, with that same technology, it's about to be applied to bicycle tyres where they'll put that nicanol or alloy on a bike tyre, you'll coat it with some rubber so it's obviously not slippery and away you go. No air in the tyre, no punctures, not much heavier, a little bit heavier than a pneumatic tyre but the same sort of grip as a tyre, the same sort of give as a tyre. It sounds like 
wonderful to that's me. incredible that, that sounds absolutely straight out of Star Trek you know it's like um, you would have thought being a metal alloy that it's going to have a bit of a slip at least you know you might get a bit more of a bumpy ride but um, you know it's lightweight and it, and it restores its shape um, and and runs like a normal rubber tyre. Absolutely. They'll probably be a little bit dearer when they first come out because obviously it is new technology, but at the same time, you don't actually throw it out when the tyre wears out. You just go and do a retread because the, the secret here is that the metal is going to last a long time. It's really that rubber that will eventually wear out and then you just retread and keep going. Wow, that is amazing. Well, at least uh, there'll be no more sweating over catheads and bindi eyes and, and whatnot uh, as you, you ride through... Uh, the, over the grass here around town. That's right. Bring it on, I say. Bring it on. <laughs> Fireworks, they're thousands, of, well, a thousand years old at least. Um, uh, but from the country that developed the whole idea of fireworks, and, and, and I'm, uh, yeah, f- from my understanding, fireworks have come from China, they've now got a new way to present a light show in a big way. It is a big way, and this has been developing over a few years now. But you use drones, drones with lights on them. And so rather than throw a bunch of gunpowder into the air and and burn some magnesium or various metals and make some beautiful colours up there in the sky, they send drones up there. But you can imagine, well, one drone, one little light on there doesn't sound that exciting. So you add more drones and more drones. And so they've just created a new Guinness World Record for the most number of drones in a light show. 3,281 drones. This (laughs) blows me away. But but they're all in, in sync. All synchronised, all perfectly synchronised, so that you've got various logos you can put in the air. It was a, an occasion, the, the arrival of Genesis, the car brand Genesis in China, was the reason they did this. And, and obviously, they didn't want to burn a bunch of gunpowder in the air. They thought, we'll do it in a modern way. We're launching a modern car brand. Let's use 3,281 drones. But it looks quite spectacular. I've watched the video, and it's unbelievable how they get into formation and sit there. One thing, I'm not sure that I want to be on the ground just watching it because the noise, one little drone, I've got one little <laughs> drone, I fly around, it's a bit noisy. Imagine 3,281 of those up in the air. So yeah, wow. it's, it's been developing for a while. Um, back in 2018, I remember there were 1,218 drones used in a light show for the Olympics. And so various companies have been trying to outdo each, each, each other. So 3,281 is the current Guinness World Record. We'll talk in a few weeks' time, James. I'm sure we'll be beaten again. There'll be 10,000 there. But, right. but what gets me is, like, uh, the sky can be quite unpredictable. I mean, we, yeah, with, with breezes that kick up, and these little things, they can just just manage it and keep in perfect sync. Just, yeah. It blows me away. Uh, I actually find, even using a normal drone, again, I've got one that I play with from time to time, and, and I put it up there and just take some videos or take some photos, not of my neighbours, of course, <laughs> but, but you, you watch how still it is. And so exactly as you are talking about there, some breezes come along. It's just uh, there's wind up there, yeah. but it just is so well engineered that it stays perfectly still when you want it to. So this synchronisation is just really showing off how good technology is now. Yeah, that's amazing. We've, we've also got uh, this this new modern paint, um, a whiter than white paint. <laughs> I didn't actually know it was possible to go whiter than white. I was thinking white was just white. That was it, yep. but apparently not. Um, and this is a really competitive thing. Researchers are trying to create even whiter white paints. So Purdue University in the US have actually just beaten their own record for the whitest white paint. And in October last year, they had an ultra white paint that reflected 95.5% of the sunlight that landed on it, which sounds pretty white to me. That's but, pretty white, yeah. But they've beaten it. They've yeah. gotten to the point now where they've got a paint that reflects 98.1% of sunlight. Now, I'm not sure at what stage they call it a mirror, 
because I assume a mirror is about 99.9%. We're so getting pretty close. Yeah, and I'm just thinking that, you know, you walk past a wall that's painted with this white paint. If you're not wearing sunglasses, you're in strife, right? <laughs> that's right. Well, if it's reflecting that much sunlight, it is probably look like just about looking at a mirror. So anyway, it's not so important the sunlight that it reflects, it's the infrared heat. That's why they're doing it. Because what they're trying to do, the researchers in this instance, is curb global warming. They have this belief that if they can coat buildings in this whiter-than-white paint, the heat reflected will reduce the amount of cooling that you need in the building, which therefore reduces the amount of electricity that's used, so therefore helping with global warming. So I I know the next question from you, James, is that if we've got whiter-than-white, do we also have blacker than black. Oh, I've actually heard about the blacker than black stuff. Yeah. This Vanta Black yeah, paint. It's yeah, it's very cool. It was developed in the UK. And so they have an absorption of light rate of 99.965. And I'm sure you've seen pictures of it, which looks fantastic. There's some fantastic stuff on YouTube about Vanta Black. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. Right. And, and I've seen aluminium foil, for example, that's been crunkled up and then a little bit's been painted with Vanta Black and it just looks like there's a hole there, like the old yeah. cartoons when you've that's got a, exactly. a hole painted yeah, in the ground. Hole. You can stick your head in. Yeah, <laughs> that's and, and that's right. It really looks like there's a hole there. Yeah, yeah, um, quite incredible. So the thing to me that's confusing about all of this is that if we've got whiter than white paint to keep our house cooler in the middle of summer, well, we want the opposite of that in winter because we want heat absorbed by our house because we don't want to have to heat the house up during winter. So what we really need is a vanta black roof for winter and then a whiter than white paint for summer and some way to switch automatically between those two. Oh, I'm seeing it right now. We've got some louver sort of design there with just a flick of a switch. It's yeah, got to be someone out there doing that, surely. Yeah, well. And then add our solar panels on top. I'm not sure how they fit into all of this, but <laughs> it sounds like our roof's going to be a pretty complicated sort of structure. But, oh, yeah, it, it just blows me away um, where technology's going with this. And that's a fairly simple sort of technology. I say simple, <laughs> but getting whiter than white or blacker than black to paint um, your house with yeah. just to uh, manage your energy. Use. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Good idea. Yeah, a really top idea. We've got 39 postal workers in the UK, ended up in jail. They've only just had their convictions overturned, but they were put in jail because of a software error. Is that right? It sounds pretty drastic, doesn't it? But you're absolutely spot on. For the last 20 years, if you're a UK post office worker, which I assume you haven't been, but you would have dealt with a piece of software called Horizon. And that's a bit of software that does a whole range of things in the post office. But one of the things that the executives in the UK Postal Service love about it is it catches those dirty postmasters out there that are stealing money from the UK Postal <laughs> Service. So They're all evil. They've, they've got the, I'm just picturing the, the, the um, caricatures with their little uh, masks and stuff like that and the stripy shirts and sitting, post, postmasters. Yeah. That's right, sitting, <laughs> sitting behind the counter there taking people's letters. So these people have been caught out, and I say caught out in a very loose sense of the word or term because it turns out that they weren't actually doing the wrong thing. And... Not only these 39, but other people that were convicted as well. But these people have been declaring their innocence, as everyone else that's in jail mm. has been declaring their innocence for years. For, for what sort of length are we looking at? Is it like a couple of years or what are we talking about? A, a whole range. But, but some of these people were in for maybe a year or two. But some there were some significant sums of money we're talking about here. And they were stealing it effectively from the government. So the government went pretty hard on them. Some of them were in jail for 10 years or oh, thereabouts. Wow. So, it's going to make an excellent movie script one day. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely agree. I think there will be a movie made about it. So So effectively, what they found was this Horizon software had a bug. And that little bug caused a little problem that said people were stealing money when really they weren't. So the executives went, we know you've stolen money, Mr. Postmaster. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. And then all the faith was put in the the software. software. Well, the software's told us this. Correct. 
Oh, so wow. you can come up with any any excuse you like, but we're not going to believe you because the software told us. So there's a whole range of employees. Basically, the 39 that have been in jail have, have come out and, and they've got their, their convictions overturned, but there have been 736 employees who have been convicted of something, they may not have gone to jail, over the years from 2000 to 2014. So there's going to be, you can just imagine the lawsuits now, the UK Postal Service will be sued, then suing Horizon, the software. I can see this being a huge problem for the UK, but more to the point, the human element of this, James, how do you get some of your life back when you've been in jail? Or, as some people talked about it, they might not have gone to jail, but they lost their job and they couldn't get another job because they were tagged as the thief from the postal service. And I can't imagine going to court and uh, being convicted of anything is... I can't imagine that not taking a tax on you. Absolutely. Particularly if you're a good person who's always done their you know, done their business lawfully and whatnot. And I'm guessing a lot of postmasters out there are fairly lawful sort of people. And you think it can't happen. You think, oh, no, they must have done something wrong. But the investigations into this show that they did nothing wrong. The ah. software showed there was money missing, therefore it must have been them. So, look, I suppose that the real point here, James, is we do put a lot of faith in the systems that we create, but we probably just have to keep in mind that maybe they're not always perfect. Maybe there is a possibility that you could have some error in some systems we create and maybe just don't accept the answer of, of yes, whereas in this case the government did and, and it ended up in some dire consequences for people. Yeah, well, I'm sure they'll all be very grateful for their exoneration. 3D printing. It's a big game and it's big business. We can print artificial body parts. We can print car parts. What's next? And don't say printing houses. <laughs> oh, damn, that's it. Okay, next item. <laughs> so, printing houses, that's it. The I next cannot thing. believe you can now print houses. There's been some prototypes printed, but this is the first house printed that actually has real people living in a real scenario, paying rent, the first commercial situation of people doing it. And it's in Eindhoven. And I've actually been to Eindhoven. And I remember going... So in the Netherlands, right? Yeah. In the Netherlands, yeah. that's right. And I, and I went there, I had to speak at a conference there a few years ago. And I remember walking into the hotel receptionist and I had no idea about Eindhoven. And I said, I need two things to know about Eindhoven to give me something to basically be familiar with your audience. And she, the receptionist said, white bikes, it's a big issue, which... People can go and research that and find out about the white bike, a, a whole anarchist movement about white bikes and innovation. They're very proud of the fact that they're innovative and they spend, or in all of the Netherlands, about 25% of all the research money that's spent is spent in Eindhoven and it's only got a population of about 230,000. So they really are trying to be at the forefront of innovation. Imagine that. Imagine governments putting money, real money, into genuine science. James, uh, it's not political, remember? Uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> but you're right. You're spot on. So this house has been built in Eindhoven. It's, it's got a married couple that have moved in. They're paying their rent. The 3D printing, there's a few different ways to 3D print houses. The one they've gone for in this particular scenario, they've 3D printed 24 modules of the house and then moved it from the factory to the site and basically strap those together as so such and put we're a roof on. essentially saying like a corner piece uh, for a wall, not not entire rooms or whatever, but um, you're, you're talking about sections of rooms, yeah? Sections of rooms, sections, a bit like you see a prefab building put up in a commercial sense. They've done similar with that in this this sort of sense here. But the great part is... Completely insulated walls. The, the walls are very cool because they're actually double concrete effectively with, with bracing concrete in between because the, the 3D printing is basically 
liquid concrete, it comes out like toothpaste and it just rolls along and lays out a layer, then does the next layer and builds up layers of this particular building. So great insulation. You've got double brick or double concrete, sorry, with air in between them. So you've got good insulation properties there. Obviously very quiet, very solid. People said, how long will this last? And I said, well, take a brick veneer or a cement rendered brick house and it's going to be the same as that. It's a it's a concrete house. But how long does it take to, to build one of these? To put all the bits together then? Yeah, well, the actual printing as such is 120 hours. So 120 hours to, to print the components and then really it's like a Meccano set. So like five days. And then this could be printing it, of course, through the night. And yeah, 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 right, okay, yeah. right. And then like a Meccano set, they bring it and put it together on site. But there's other other methods as well. This is, again, the first one that's had people living in it. But some other prototypes around the world are actually doing some of the printing on site. So they'll bring well, this big machine and they set it up and then they say, come back in a couple of days and you come back and this 3D printing has finished the entire house. Now, <laughs> when I say finished the entire house, they've still got carpet to put down inside and, and electricals to, to basically figure out internally. Right, yeah, well, it's that makes really sense. doing the entire shell. But what they're also doing is being a bit smarter. They're typically not putting gyprock on the inside walls. They're just leaving the concrete walls inside. It looks, I describe it a bit like a Fred Flintstone house. It looks a bit rough, but it's a its a bit of character about the look of it all. Yeah, right. And you've got to put your personal touch in there. That's where you, you go get your interior designer, if you can afford them. That's but right. uh, Or you you, know, you hang your family p- portraits on the wall or whatnot. Yeah, uh, that's right. Um, and it looks less like Fred Flintstone's place and more like your own. But um, yeah, a remarkable movement in, in construction of houses. Absolutely. And you've got some, some really nice things. A third less concrete is used in the, the construction of a house like this. Right. It's obviously done quicker and done cheaper. So in some places, India, for example, India has actually just printed their first 3D house in April. No one's living in it yet. But they printed their first 3D house in some of the areas of India where there are way too many people and not enough housing. They see the government in India sees this as a great solution to try and get housing in some of those places. You've got 3D printed houses. Again, all these are prototypes in Mexico. You've got one made in, in America, which was a, a, a classic architect drawing a, a house that would be near impossible to build, a bit like the opera house, very difficult to build, but looks pretty. But they then 3D printed it, printed it not just out of concrete, but concrete and plastic so that they could actually get some of the shapes that the architect drew. So you've got all of these different things happening. So that was my next question because currently you're talking about printing with concrete. Well, as material science develops, uh, surely we've got to expect that the house is going to be uh, – Potentially produced with even more uh, efficient and well, energy efficient materials and and possibly uh, less resource hungry materials. Yeah, and as well. we we take away that sort of square shape that typically buildings are square rectangular shape, and you, you stick a triangle on top. A lot of that's done for strength, obviously, but it's also done for convenience. It's it's a bit harder for a bricklayer to go and lay bricks around a corner or timber, building a house out of timber and starting to go around a corner, whereas a a 3D printed house, the the concrete just prints around whatever shape the architect's draws. And your house will be the talk of the street. (laughs) That's that's right. Ladies and gentlemen, you probably loved... um Arnold Schwarzenegger in Total Recall back in the mid-90s there. Uh, And I remember a scene there where they got into... They're in Mars... Uh, on Mars, I should say, and they jumped into a taxi and there was no driver. It was a robotic uh, taxi. You're in a Johnny Cat. Matt, tell us more about this. Where we're headed for the robotic taxi, is that right? We're here now. In fact, there's there's five places in the world at the moment that you can actually have a robo taxi. So some of those robo taxis have someone in the driver's seat and they do nothing, just there to make people feel comfortable. But you've got two places in California Imagine being employed just to chat, just to, just to <laughs> make people feel like it's safe here, even though I'm doing nothing. I don't have a driver's license. Sorry about that. And you don't have to talk. A lot of people get into a taxi; they don't want to talk anyway. Exactly right. Exactly right. So there's three places in. 
China and two places in California, you can you can actually get him. So one they're now. running now. They're running right now. They're trying to get more approvals to go into more places and get to the point where there's absolutely no one in the in the car or in the robo taxi whatsoever. But already these vehicles have driven without the help of humans. They've driven five million kilometres. They've only got an operational domain of about 850 kilometres. So it's not like you can jump in one in one town or city and say, take me those 400 kilometres across to another place. They've got a, a very specific area they've mapped out, which is only about 850 kilometres of roadways, which sounds like a lot, but across five cities is not a huge amount. But there's been 250,000 robo-taxi rides that have been taken already. Yeah, so right. it's so happening. people are jumping into it. They are, literally. but... The newest version of the, and this is Pony.ai, the company that's got these robo-taxis running, the newest version of their vehicles, this is the thing they think is really going to make the breakthrough. Because at the moment, you see the taxi and you know it's got something different because it's got a big bucket on top that spins around with its LiDAR on it. And you can kind of see that there's something different going on here. The newest version of these vehicles that will be produced by next year, so it's not that far away, they've basically got all the LiDAR hidden down in a small compartment in the roof. So it just looks like almost a little bubble on the roof. And you go, oh, it's an interesting design of a car. But in that bubble is all the technology that at the moment in cars is a big bucket on top that spins around. Yeah, so when you okay. walk up to this car, you'll just go, oh, groovy looking car, interesting roof. It's and you get in. Yeah, and then yeah. you say, well, where's the driver? I'll, I'll wait for the driver to come along, but there is no driver. So you won't really know it's that different until you get in the car and notice there's no driver oh, in there. Goodness me. The first time I can imagine be really disconcerting for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like when I've driven my car hands-free, and of course I wouldn't take my hands off the steering wheel because that would be illegal, James. Oh. But when I rest my hands on the steering wheel very loosely, which is legal, and let the car drive around a corner, it's really disconcerting. But even with passengers, and I say, watch this, I've got my hands loosely on the wheel, and it goes around a corner, and it's, it's just a really weird concept seeing that steering will move underneath your hand so go one step further than that when you're not even sitting in the driver's seat sitting in the back seat watching this car just drive around the streets of a city it's a really well scary I, i'm excited by this i know i've got a son who i don't think will ever hold a driver's license uh, and so he needs some independence he yeah. needs to be able to get around town so i look forward to them hitting our town shortly yeah yeah so anyway it's, it's using lidar it's got four lidar sensors on it front back out to the sides they've got a range of about 500 meters so look it's it's all the technology that's being developed to make all this happen there's a bit of an argument about some different companies using video rather than lidar but in my opinion, that the real solution is a combination of both. But the general view here is that this is happening. You can bury your head in the sand if you like, but this is happening. And before we know it, we'll be getting in a taxi that's got no driver in there. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I can only imagine. And right now, I've only got Total Recall uh, from the 1990s to help me out with that. Fossil fuels, the writing's on the wall for you. Petrol stations are going to start looking different, and it's not just about getting charging stations in. Most of their money isn't actually in the petrol sales these days anyway. Am I right? You are right, and I apologise, James. I tried so hard this week. I, I always show an EV story in there. I don't mean to. I said it last week. I love it, Matt. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I love these EV stories, but anyway. Well, this is the closest I could come to not having an EV story. It's not an EV story. It's a petrol station story, kind of. Yeah, no, no, you get away with it on a technicality. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. All right. So the Boston Consulting Group, and I've got a lot of time for them, I, I often quote the BCG with, with the, the various studies they do, and they did a, a study on petrol stations, and they said if they don't change their business model, by the year 2035, and that's not a long way away, 25%, bare minimum of 25% of petrol stations will be unviable, but maybe up to 80% of petrol stations will be unviable yeah. just because the world's changing. Wow. Now, they've also said in this same report that by the year 2030, so we're talking nine years, their estimation is that 
half the cars across the world will be EV sales. So if you owned a petrol station, you'd be saying, well, hold on, if I'm going to reduce my market quite dramatically, well, what am I going to do with that? So the whole report was about the face of the petrol station. Now, it might seem pretty easy just to say, well, that's easy. You just pull out the Bowsers, stick in some electric start charging stations, and your problem solved. But I don't think it's quite as simple as that. The, the real never issue... Never that simple. No, it, never that simple. The real issue here, I think, is the fact that you've got incredibly valuable pieces of real estate. Petrol stations, where are they? They're on busy highways, busy corners, yeah, high-profile locations, and they have been reducing over the years. I did some research in Australia. Back in the 70s, early 70s, you had about 25,000 petrol stations across the nation. We're already down to 6,500 petrol stations. Now, I think most of that has been in larger petrol stations, and rather than you used to have places that just had one Bowser or two Bowsers, they seem to have more Bowsers now. But you're spot on in what you said in the intro. Petrol stations don't make money out of petrol. The petrol is what gets you in the door. They make money out of chocolate, out of soft drinks, out of all the things that they have in the petrol station. Blows me away, yeah. And I think about the car trips that we do. Yep. Uh, we're stopping somewhere and we're grabbing a couple of snacks on, on our way as well. Well, you're just and doing the right thing, James. we're not the dirt cheap price for these No, snacks, no. Right? <laughs> but you're uh, doing the right thing by those petrol station operators. You're just supporting an industry. Well done. Industry alive. You could there duck you around the, the corner to a supermarket <laughs> and pay half the price for those lollies, but you're doing the right thing by the, super, the petrol station industry. Yeah, so right. what are they going to do? Uh, there is one solution there that says, just put some, some charging stations in there. But then you'd want to change the model for that petrol station because you're going to have people captured for longer. So you might have, for example, a restaurant that served better quality food rather than quick grab because it's maybe three minutes to fill up and then grab a, a sausage roll or a meat pie. Now they might be there for 15 minutes. So you've got time to serve a bit better quality food well, or a bit better quality sense, coffee. Yeah. But there might be a whole range of other things. Because of that beautiful location they've got, you might find that you've got people who have got, for example, a car wash. So you build a car wash in, you might charge up at the car wash and then go in and have something to eat. Or maybe there'll be a gym as part of it there. You, you go and charge up for your, for your 15 or 20 minutes and do a workout while you're there. There could be post offices there. There, there could be a whole range of things. And I just, I, I'll be interested to see what they look like in, say, 15 years' time because I don't think we'll just replace the Bowsers with an EV charging station. I think there'll be something completely different or a different model that sits there, again, taking advantage of that real estate. Yeah, so we're looking at a complete revolutionisation of, of, of that 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 entire industry. Oh, I think um, so. Yeah, and so opening up jobs, um, you know, people who are concerned about um, you know, the EVs t actually removing people from the workforce or whatever, cutting people out of jobs, there's going to be new industries created um, simply just by a changing landscape there. Always. There are always new industries created. And, and when you think about the top five petrol station brands in Australia, Coles is number one. Woolworths was number two, but there was a sale, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, there are two petrol station operators, three and four, and then 7-Eleven is number five. So of the top five operators of petrol stations, petrol stations, mind you, yeah. three of them are associated with food brands. So obviously at some point someone in an executive boardroom said, hey, this is a changing face. Petrol stations are no longer places to sell petrol. They're places to sell Food, in the first example, or other things. But the, the, the number two, Woolworths, was just sold fairly recently to a group out of Britain, actually, called the EG Group. 
they sold 540 petrol stations for three, for $1.73 billion. So it valued each one about $3.2 million. Now, if the whole place was going to collapse, you wouldn't think someone would pay $3.2 million for each of those. Yeah. They obviously see there is still a business model there going forward, and I'm sure they didn't do it in a short-term way and go, we'll sell a petrol for a few years and then we'll just close them down. I'm sure they've got a plan. You don't normally hand over $1.73 billion without having some sort of a – well, I don't anyway, James. I, I'm a bit more careful with my $1.73 <laughs> billion than that. So I think there's a, there is a – really a changing face here and I'll be interested to see what it looks like. I think we're all excited by it. Yeah. The winds of change are blowing folks. Over the past 20 years automation has been creeping into our lives uh, more and more and it, and it seems to be gaining more steam lately if you'll pardon the industrial era reference. Um, Matt I believe you're going to give travellers a little bit of something to think about when they're planning their future overseas holidays is that right? Well, we can't fly overseas at the moment so yeah, I don't okay. want to scare so people too much. in the future much. we're talking about. Yeah that's yeah. right I don't want to scare people too much but the, the story just reminds me of Flying High. One of my favourite comedies, Flying High. Yeah, or if you're in America or somewhere else overseas, I think they called it Aeroplane, didn't they? Air, or no, Airplane, airplane yeah, sorry. rather than Aeroplane, yeah. which I think because Americans refer to them as airplanes rather than aeroplanes. But yeah, certainly, I think it was called Airplane! Exclamation mark. Yeah, in, either way, in we're talking about Leslie Nielsen, aren't That's we? One right. of the classics. Enough said. Yeah. <laughs> so in that, there's that famous scene there where Elaine Dickinson, not spelt the same as my surname, ah, but Elaine ah. Dickinson, the stewardess, comes in and, and she's talking to the control tower after Captain Over collapses and he's dragged out of the cockpit and they said turn on the automatic pilot and so she flips the switch and up comes a blow up doll oh, of the automatic oh, pilot and starts yeah, flying yeah. the plane. And the funny went. part is, yeah, that's why I won't go further with that one, James, but the funny part is that when we're sitting in a plane, the, the plane takes off. We, we sometimes see that the pilots get into the cockpit and it takes off and it flies somewhere and we seem to generally get the other oh, end. And there's someone's voice that comes over the announcer, like over the speakers as well, so yeah. Yeah, introducing themselves as a speaker. They might as well be somewhere in, in the... Qantas Lounge. They, they could be in the Qantas Lounge. They could be sitting somewhere else on the plane. They could be sitting right next to you. So we, we don't know what really goes on in, in the cockpit. We assume there's a couple of pilots up there and autopilot that we hope an autopilot that runs it is, is some sort of electronic concept. But back in about the 50s, we had about five people up in the cockpit. Yeah, you know, a five, flight yeah. engineer. I don't yeah. know what the flight engineer did, but a radio operator, I can work out that one, they operated the radio. So they had a whole person <laughs> dedicated to operating the radio. Just and to then, choose the good songs, that's all. <laughs> maybe, yeah. That's right. My playlist for today. Yeah. And then they had the navigator, and that seemed like a pretty important job, getting us from A to B. The, the navigator seemed like they did a pretty good job. They've, they've reduced, obviously, from those days, from five down to two, and we, we seem to be okay with that. We seem to be pretty comfortable. And we trust autopilot, and I think we do because autopilot's been around for a long time. Yeah. I imagine it had been around for decades, but no, autopilot, the first autopilot ever used was used in 1912. What? Get out of here. Not many 1912. years 1912? Yep, that's right. So I'm, I'm, I'm envisaging a bit of steampunk here. I'm thinking like there's going to be levers and, and handles out holding on to that main joystick there, but you're going to tell me something different, I guess. No, it probably is like that, actually. Yeah, I right, think yeah. I mean, it wasn't that many years before 1912 when, when one of the Wright brothers was laying down on his, yeah, on on his stomach hook, yeah. with, with the, the levers, as you say. But the, the first autopilots focused on direction. So they basically had a, a compass set up that would then focus on steering it in the right direction because it was pretty hard. You didn't have the GPS in your plane back in 1912. So mm. that was the first autopilot. So we've had some time to get used to it. But there's a company in America now that's going a step further and they're thinking, well, look, we're okay with autopilot flying for most of the trip. We're okay with a couple of pilots down from five in the, in the cockpit. So what about getting to the stage where we reduce the pilot numbers further to zero? How do you reckon the travelling yeah. public would go then? Well, we've had conversations about people um, having a concern about having no taxi driver or having no driver in the car. Mm. I think and you talked about Johnny Cab previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, 
now we're talking about, yeah, no one in the cockpit. Yeah, what do you reckon? Yeah. Well, look, I had a conversation with um, someone who was in the automotive industry about 15 years ago, and he was talking about how it's probably easier to land a plane than to steer a car along a road. I think that's something different, though. But to, um, sorry, it's easier to land a plane or to get a plane to take off by autopilot. But that was that was ages ago, and I'm not quite sure that there was much to back it up then. But, <laughs> yeah, we're now at a stage where we're looking at, pilotless planes. Yeah. And I think your friend has probably got a point there because in a plane and an airport, you've got a controlled environment. You don't have too many dogs or kids running across oh, yeah, the runway. Yeah, yeah, you sure. don't have streets going across with traffic lights. You have a fairly controlled environment. In cars, you don't. So we're at the point now where this particular company is converting a fleet of 55 King Airs. Now, we know the King Airs in Australia because the Royal Flying Doctor Service. They use, oh, yeah. uh, I think they've got about 40 King Airs in their fleet. So it's a, a plane that we're fairly familiar with here. They're converting 55 of these King Airs to completely autonomous flight. Take off to landing, the whole lot, no pilot on board, no people on board at this stage. So their approvals that they're getting through the FAA are for things like surveillance flights. And and, uh, the first thing I thought of was bushfires. Often you'll have a plane flying well above a bushfire to just keep an eye on on the actual progression of the fire to then tell water bombers down below, right, it's going in this direction going east at 20 kilometres an hour, whatever. So surveillance is an important one. You might even have the point where freight is taken from point A to point B. Freight went up across the world by about 9% over the COVID timeframe. So yeah, getting really? more, yeah, okay. more planes up in the air with freight on board. So the, the first approvals will be no people on board, literally no people on board, no pilots on board, no passengers on board, and flying some of these flights. But obviously it's, it's going to get to the point where if you can fly these successfully with just freight, just surveillance, monitoring, that type of thing. It's not that far down the track before passengers will be getting on a plane. Goodness me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got friends who um, are still a little bit concerned about flying regardless. I mean, a jumbo jet weighs tens of tonnes, maybe uh, hundreds of tonnes, but I don't know. Sure, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, How do you get uh, this big lump of metal up in the air and get to stay there? They still don't believe in flight, would you believe, folks? Um, but, <laughs> you uh, some new friends, James, I think. <laughs> yeah, it certainly gets them worried. That hasn't stopped them from going overseas and going on planes, but it had them worried for a long time, right? right. Um, this is next level, though. It yeah. is, isn't it? And we, we wouldn't really know if they didn't advertise. I'm sure they'd probably tell people about it. There'd be some rules around that. But we wouldn't really know. When you get on the plane... You don't often see the pot. You can't see in the cockpit anymore. They, they keep the, the door well, provided closed. Provided that guy in the Qantas lounge is talking over the loudspeaker, I'm fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. If he tells me he's on the plane, then I'm going to Everything's believe okay. It. Yeah, yeah. So they, they're, they're not, they're not yeah. talking. We, we've got drone operations we've seen that we've been a little bit familiar with. Again, not passengers on board. And that's someone remote controlling a plane. And so we kind of go, well, that's okay-ish. There's still someone controlling it. But this wouldn't even have that. This might mm. have a person who's in monitoring status they might be monitoring say 10 flights maybe 20 flights maybe 100 flights at once so that if there was a problem on one of those planes then they'd say right we better go and take some control and, and do something manual here right. and, and i've watched one of my favorite shows is air crash investigations which <laughs> sounds a bit sad but I, I like the investigation and the science process behind that <laughs> but but we all know when we've watched a show like that that autopilot is fantastic until it isn't until fantastic. It isn't, and yeah. when we saw, I remember uh, Air France Flight 447, that flight, that crash was blamed directly on the autopilot. And, of course, the, the Boeing 737 MAX saga where we had two crashes, unfortunately, was mm. that. And, again, both of those were blamed directly on the autopilot. So the autopilot's great until it's not. The autopilot's great given the fact that it's still relying on humans to have programmed the autopilot. And yeah. if they make a mistake in the programming, then you still have consequences that are pretty dire. 
Hmm. Well, again, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see which way that goes, or how 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 long it takes for that to take off. But um, very oh, interesting. No, the puns are still rolling out, James. Uh-huh. <laughs> They pulled the pin on the Concorde way back in 2003, folks, and it really upset a fair chunk of the European and American population, uh, not just the well-to-do, but, but real flying enthusiasts as well. Well, folks, they'll soon have a chance to fly supersonic again, and that's you too. Yeah, that's me too. I never flew on the Concorde, James, and when it got shut down, I actually thought, oh, I would have liked to have. And I looked at the, the tickets when they were going at the end, and people were buying normal tickets, putting them on eBay, and they were going for sixty dollars and $80,000. So I thought that might be the best yeah. use of my money. Well, from what I gather, we had some high-end businessmen who were commuting between you know, France and, and New York on a daily basis. Yeah, that's right. You'd, you'd go across to, to London, for example, or New York, or sorry, Paris, and it was about a seven-hour trip or, or thereabouts, maybe seven and a half hours normally and the Concorde took it down to about three and a half hours so yeah you could get up and maybe take an early flight get across there do your normal day's work and be back home for dinner it certainly did change things dramatically and it seemed like the illogical way to go we seem to be trying to get faster and stronger with everything that we do so why wouldn't we all be flying supersonic it's just an exciting prospect to be going faster than the speed of sound you're right james Especially when you consider how significant an achievement it was when humans first flew faster than the speed of sound. I remember a quote from Jack Ridley, the chief of the US Air Force's Flight Test Engineering Laboratory. He said, There was a demon that lived in the air. They said whoever challenged him would die. His controls would freeze up. His plane would buffet wildly and he would disintegrate. The demon lived at Mach 1 on the meter. 750 miles an hour, where the air could no longer move out of the way. He lived behind a barrier through which they said no man would ever pass. They called it the sound barrier. Well, of course, as history tells us, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier on the 14th of October 1947, but fast and the speed of sound travel was not possible for most people until along came the Concorde. But... It's been 2003, as you say, 18 years since yeah. we've last flown supersonic for the time. general public. But now there's a company called Boom Supersonic, and obviously Boom with the Sonic Boom reference there, and they've got a plane called the Overture. So they believe that this will now get back into the realm of where people will be flying supersonic again. It's not going to be quite as fast as the Concorde. The Concorde actually flew at just over Mach 2, so just more than twice as fast as the speed of sound. So it flew roughly at about 2,180 kilometres an hour. The Overture, as it's called, will be flying a little bit slower than that, only Mach 1.7, about 1,805 kilometres an hour. Still not too bad, though. (laughs) Well, it's hardly a disappointment. (laughs) No, that's right. I think that'll be okay. (laughs) But the real thing here is about the sustainability of it. The Concorde, for all the years that it flew, people talked about the expense of running it, the maintenance cost. It was the last plane, really, commercial plane that still had three people in the cabin. It had two pilots and a flight engineer. Not sure what the flight engineer did, but obviously (laughs) you want to design that out of the plane and only have the two pilots in there. The whole idea of this is that you've got to try and fly it sustainably so they believe they can produce the plane and have airlines flying the plane for net zero carbon emissions. Which yeah, that's amazing. Pretty big claim to make, isn't it? Yeah, right. So what, what sort of fuel are you using for that, sorry? Oh, they, they're talking about sustainable aviation fuel, or some people call it a posh biodiesel. And basically you take everything from maybe a bit of 
animal fat, uh, you get things from the farming industry, you get high energy crops, put all that together, and that produces some sort of fuel that's going to be as good as jet fuel, apparently. Yeah, and right. I can't imagine that you'd want a substandard fuel when you want to get to Mach 1.7. So <laughs> not only is there the excitement that you could fly faster than the speed of sound, but also that you could do it sustainably, which I think is quite exciting. And I think by the time this is real, we're talking about 2029, so eight years away, as much as the world is starting to focus on the climate and the environment now, I think by 2029, it would be absolutely essential. You wouldn't want to get on a plane that didn't have some sort of yeah. net zero carbon emission statement associated with it. So yeah. it's the right path to go down. But I am still excited about that whole idea of going faster than the speed of sound. But, it sounds but great. I do think that there's some other limitations to where you can actually catch these planes. They've got certain limitations about flying over land. You're not allowed to be you know, breaking the sound barrier over people's houses and stuff like that because it's just so loud and, and alarming. Uh, apparently they only do that when they're over the ocean. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's a bit disappointing, isn't it? Surely a little bit of a sonic boom every now and again. <laughs> In a flight path, but you're and right. And then because it uses so much fuel, they can only go so so far, I guess, at this stage. So, you know, you're only looking for a short distance over, the, say, the Atlantic Ocean rather than the Pacific Ocean. So there's some yeah, they, limitations. The Concorde didn't fly, for example, Sydney to LA, that long flight, which would normally take 13 hours in a normal plane. But they are talking with the Overture. They're quoting travel times between Sydney and LA. Oh, really? So it may well be that they yeah, start wow. here a bit longer. And, and obviously, they fly high, and the, the Concorde flew at, at great heights as well. So about 60,000 feet it flew at. And that's obviously to try and get that wind resistance down low. Uh, you'd tell me the exact formula, but you double your speed, you quadruple your air resistance. So yeah. you start going from a normal airliner at, say, 0.9, 0.92 Mach, jump up to 1.7 Mach. Yeah, you've basically doubled your speed. Yeah. And if you only flew at that, say, 36,000 feet that a normal airliner might fly out, then you've got that air resistance. Get to 60,000 feet, less air around, obviously. So you're thinning that air out, you've got less air resistance. You've got to get up to that height, though, as well, which chews up a bit of energy. So it's yeah. a pretty complicated equation overall. And you've also got that expansion of the cabin, less air density at 60,000 feet. So the cabin wants to expand more, more pressure on the inside because we're little humans in the middle. We want to be sitting there at a nice, comfortable air pressure. And uh, and then the temperature outside, it's about negative 57 degrees Celsius. So it's a bit chilly outside. So you've got to make sure the plane works at those sort of temperatures. Yeah, the physics behind it is mind-boggling. It and is. I just yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing this boom get together. Yeah, and yeah, no, I think it'd be very exciting. Wind energy. A uh, prominent politician of a decade ago proclaimed it as an eyesore. This was predicted to be a multi-pronged degradation on the Australian landscape and on the economy. Matt, how are we looking now, a decade on, with a fairly well-established wind turbine infrastructure? Uh, and what are the predict- predictions for the next decade? So do you think that same politician would have said that electricity poles 100 years ago were a blight on the landscape? Mm, Don't mm. get that electricity delivered to your house. Keep burning those lanterns. Those Who wants those lanterns, yes. <laughs> right. Who wants those terrible electricity poles put up and then go forward another 80 years and say, who wants those terrible mobile phone towers put up? Yeah, yeah we do change our landscape on a regular basis, and that's called progress in most situations. Give me electricity poles and mobile phone towers every day. Give me wind turbines every day. I just think they're all fantastic and part of our technology progress. And it is quite impressive to look out on the horizon when you see a wind farm. I do like them. I like it, yeah. Yeah, look, I've heard some people say they're ugly. I get excited by what it represents. And what it's doing, yeah, yeah. And the same people that say that they look ugly in the landscape, do they go past a coal-fired power plant and say, look at that beautiful smoke being spewed into the environment? Work of art, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So the good part is that you and I, using a bit of common sense, James, said five years, ten years ago, that wind turbines might be expensive to put up, but to run them for the next 
25 years or thereabouts, then you're not feeding coal or gas into them every day. You're feeding nothing into them. You've got to maintain them, a bit of grease and oil change on their gearbox. You just have to let the wind do its job. Hmm. So logically, they were going to be cheaper. And experts said, yes, they will bring down electricity prices. But experts got it wrong. They said they bring down electricity prices, but they didn't go far enough. So the predictions, oh, really? no, the predictions now are saying that if we look at what's happened so far with the research that's been done and the efficiency being driven out of wind turbines, they say that the cost reductions will be about, this is for our electricity bills, 17 to 35% by the year 2035 and 37 to 49% by the year 2050. Yeah, right. Most of these savings are being driven by bigger turbines, more efficient turbines, and believe it or not, lower costs of production because they're producing more of them. The same has happened with so many things based around technology. As we produce more, they get better at making them, and away we go. So again, some of those predictions in the past were that the savings would be there but lower than those figures. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I also think that um, there's, a, there's a logic there that uh, it's the same with Google. I know that Google doesn't use huge mainframe computers. They just have these enormous office blocks that contain a lot of tiny units of computers. So when something goes on the blink, you're just fixing one little unit and everything else is running sweetly. Yeah, well, it's a good point too. So that if a coal-fired power station goes on the blink <laughs> or Fukushima <laughs> goes on the blink, then that has a huge impact on your electricity production. You look at a wind farm that might have 30 or 40 wind turbines and if one, for whatever reason, is being maintained or it's on the blink, then that didn't destroy yeah. the whole energy field there. But some of the data that's coming out is quite interesting. When we look at, for example, the, the size of the turbines and they break them up a little bit from onshore to offshore, when we look at onshore wind, then, for example, in 2035, they say that those average turbines will be 5.5 megawatts per turbine, which is quite impressive. Yeah. At the moment, they're about 2.5 megawatts. So again, that's driving some of the efficiency. When we go to offshore, they're much larger in those offshore wind turbines, and there's a few reasons for that, but you might get to an average by the year 2035 of 17 megawatts for one turbine. Now the offshore ones are about 6 megawatts. And floating oh, right. offshore, so three times, yeah. yeah. And floating offshore is the one that really impresses me. They're not drilling down into the bedrock under the ocean because sometimes the ocean is not that deep, and sometimes it's very deep. They have floating offshore wind turbines, <laughs> right. which are very clever. You know, it's not like a boat; you just leave it go and off it goes somewhere. You actually have some cables tying that back to the ground to bring the electricity back in, but they don't have to actually drill those down into the bedrock underneath the ocean. They just there float them there. So they're actually cheaper to put up. And so they will be something that we'll see more and more of as well going forward. All very exciting, but the great thing about it, common sense says this is what's going to happen, but the experts have actually done the analysis and given us some numbers to wrap around it, which is great because one thing that people often complain about is their electricity bill. Yeah, and you're exactly right. It's good to finally get those numbers in. And we had to assume that the technology was going to develop and it will continue to further. If I'm a proponent of a wind farm, I've probably thought about the costs. I've probably thought about the return on my investment because I'm investing my shareholders' money or even my money. Yeah, because there was always that, always that argument about, oh, but what happens when the wind doesn't blow? That's right. And we know that the wind doesn't blow sometimes, but... Well, these people that put these up, they don't just go and randomly pick a spot and say, there's a nice hill, I'll chuck some wind turbines up. They spend a fair bit of time well, testing. It, yeah, that's right, <laughs> to make sure that if they're going to invest the money in some wind turbines, they've done all the testing to know that the wind, sure, as you said, doesn't blow forever, but it's blowing consistently enough that they know they'll be able to produce electricity at that particular site. They don't go and build it without knowing there's a good, consistent flow of wind. 
And still, you might get times when not every turbine is spinning, but you don't rely on just one little area to produce all your electricity. You've got multiple areas. You've got solar. You've got wind turbines. You've got different ways of storing power. You build all that together, and you build a network that can support that. Who would have thought that diversification might be the answer for securing a stable future? Stop it. The nuclear energy debate has been a popular one in classrooms and political party rooms around the globe for years. Currently, I understand there's about 443 nuclear plants across 30 countries on this planet. Safety is a big issue, of course, as well as dealing with the uh, relatively small but extremely nasty sort of waste. But it's the sheer magnitude of energy output that cannot be compared with any of the other forms. Well, a new option, the nuclear battery, is coming on the market. This is some incredible downsizing for convenience, Matt. Downsizing? I, I do like the idea. I imagine this little AA-sized battery that you could plug into your drone and it would fire for the next 20 years. car that goes forever and ever, ever and ever. Right. Imagine that. It would be very cool. But it, it wasn't quite that size. It's a little bit bigger than a AA battery. But I want to go back, because there's a couple of interesting things about how we generate power. And I want to just go back a little bit to the start and see how we do generate power in general terms and then see how nuclear becomes so effective. The thing that I find really interesting is that Water is still used in all these different things, coal-fired power, nuclear power, and water's yeah. got that property, which is, well, it's a lot of it around, so it's easy to get, but it expands by about 1,600 times when it goes from a liquid to a gas. Now, why that's good is it means you can heat it up and the temperatures aren't ridiculous. As we probably know, 100 yeah. degrees Celsius gives us a gas. Manageable. Manageable, that's right. We're not talking about 1,000 degrees Celsius or something ridiculous. So you can heat it up, turns into a gas. When it expands by 1,600 times, then you can use that to drive a turbine, to spin something. And obviously what we're trying to do, Faraday's law of induction we spoke about in a previous episode, we're trying to spin something, i.e. some conductors through a magnetic field. Yep to create electricity. Happy days. So back in 1882, when the Edison Electric Light Station was built, the very first coal-fired power station, it was using the same concept. It heated water, that water turned into steam, that created some velocity in that steam, went through and spun a turbine, and we had electricity. Fantastic. And he started building those coal plants on almost every street corner in in New York. (laughs) Why not? Yeah, because it was all on DC. It was all going to lose its energy through the wires. That's right, when you started transmitting that, because that was the big big battle of the day, wasn't it? Edison had DC and, of course, the competitors had AC, and and we know how that ended up finally. So that's still the same concept. We jump forward 139 years. We've got about 2,449 coal-fired power stations around the world, and generally they work on that same principle. Hmm. They burn coal, they heat up water, they spin gas turbines. Great. Thank you, the industrial age, but it's time for us to move on. That's right. Now, in 1954 they went and found the idea of nuclear. Now, why did nuclear suddenly get exciting for them? It's the same concept, but you can generate a lot more heat out of a much smaller volume of nuclear-powered substance, like uranium, for example, as compared to coal. And if you go back to... I reckon it's probably the most famous physics equation in the world and probably the least understood physics equation. It's one everyone loves. That's right. Thank you, Albert Einstein. That's right. E equals mc squared. When you take that equation and apply that, effectively it's talking about the amount of energy available in the mass of something multiplied by the speed of light squared, which is a big number. You break it down to some practical terms. To give me enough power to run my average household in coal, I need about two tonnes of coal. So think about a dump truck with a couple of tonnes of coal, dump that in my front yard, burn that throughout the year. There you go. I've got enough electricity for my house. If I take the same amount of uranium 
it's 22 grams of uranium to power mm. my house for the year. Yeah, right. And that's why it's exciting from a nuclear power perspective. You're not having to provide a lot of raw material to provide a whole bunch of power. It's only a, a small amount of raw material. 22 grams, wow. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? So imagine that AA battery again, that would power your remote control <laughs> car for a long, 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 long time. So take all that together and you say, well, why aren't we all doing nuclear? Of course, you've got incidents like Chernobyl, like Fukushima, that scare people a bit when you get the complete meltdown. I think we almost get grips with the idea of waste, mm. but just the, the Fukushima's of the world really scare people. Mm. So the concept of the electric battery, getting back to that part of it, and I apologise for the long way around there, I just think it's interesting how you get there. The concept of a nuclear battery is you take something that's container-sized, not AA-sized, you build it so it's a completely self-contained unit, you put a small amount of uranium in there, and obviously some very good protection around that uranium, and you've now got a little nuclear battery that you can go and sit somewhere as a container, put on the back of a truck, and you've got enough power to run, for example, 3,000 households for 10 years. At the end of that 10-year time frame, you pick up your container-sized battery, nuclear battery, take it back to the factory and refurb it, which basically means take the waste product out, put in some new raw material, and then you've got your nuclear battery ready to go again. Safety-wise, obviously, you've got a lot of protection within that particular device. But if you get hit by a tsunami like happened in Fukushima, you've got one container. You haven't got a whole nuclear power plant that can be damaged and melt down and cause a catastrophic amount of damage. I mean, I think they had 154,000 residents that had to be evacuated from Fukushima. There's a 20-kilometre disaster zone around Fukushima that just can't be lived in for who knows how long. Mm. So you've got all that, but with a, a container, you're able to, excuse the pun, contain that much better. But also, if you had something like an earthquake, you had something like a tsunami, you're unlikely to break that whole thing apart. So I can see factories that have high power needs. I can see neighbourhoods that want to be carbon emission free. I can see people using this little battery. Of course, the problem is the NIMBY. I I want one for our neighbourhood. I just want to put it next to your place rather than my place, James. Mm. (laughs) That's the problem, I think. Well, I I see an enormous opening there for modern farming as well because we know that farming has got to change. We're going to need uh, a lot more food, uh, so we're going to need higher yields in a smaller space Mm. um, of growing. And so I see in uh, farms sort of diversifying and and having some sort of, well, processing plant um, or even even large glass houses, as I talked before, um, with that, that will, will require energy, um, and this might this might um, resolve some of those problems. So I'm interested there. Do you think so? There's farmers now that are out there that have got wind turbines on their farm. Mm. They sacrifice a small patch of their earth that mm. they use for, say, for example, sheep to graze on, and they put a pad there, and there's a wind turbine on top. They get paid for that, so it's a way for them to help generate renewable power, but also actually generate a bit of money for the farm. So are you thinking that maybe a farmer could say, hey, go and drop one of those containers on my farm. I'm happy to to rent you a bit of space on my land. That takes it away from James and Matthew's backyards and puts it out on my farm. And you're not too far away from where you need it. Then you don't have to run such a huge run of electrical cables or overhead transmission lines to get there, or are you thinking... Yeah, no, no, I'm thinking that, yeah, definitely that could happen. Uh, but also we're talking about farmers having to process stuff on their properties as well. Yeah, right, so yeah. just the, the power requirements they might have. So maybe even smaller the container, you don't need the power of 3,000 homes to maybe run that processing assembly on a farmer's yeah. property, for example. Maybe refrigeration and things like that happening on farms as well. The other thing interesting here is that we also, by having distributed power, we're also reducing the loss of transmission to depending on where your power is generated and a whole range of other variables, you're probably losing around 9 to 13% of your power that you use at your house 
in transmission. So mm. if you start to be able to put these devices more distributed around the network, you're suddenly reducing those transmission losses. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, who takes that up first and where we go with it. Now, listen, I'm so old, I remember setting my watch to the exact time on the phone. Remember the old, at the third stroke, it'll be 4.45 and 20 seconds. And that was how we set our phones in the 80s. It was regarded as the, the correct time. Nowadays, we're probably synced straight to the internet anyway, and so the internet just does it on your, your phones and your uh, watches anyway. But, um, but to what precision? A standard stopwatch that I use goes to about a hundredth of a second. The top of the line one will take me to a thousandth of a second. But if you really want accuracy, you want an atomic-based clock, and, and often they're, they're cesium-based. They'll time to a billionth of a second. Now, that's accuracy. But what is the use of that level of, of accuracy and timing, Matt? Well, I'm a bit the same as you. I used to go around and ring 1194 and set every clock in the house yeah, to the I right time. The number. Yeah, yeah. Daylight saving, <laughs> you'd go and change the clocks and make sure they're right. And it didn't mean that I was necessarily on time for things, but I knew exactly how late I was yeah. when I got to things. Yeah, yeah that's so what it's it, about. It was just one of those things. Now, of course, so many things are connected to the internet. In fact, in this room we're sitting in now, there's a clock in here that's connected to the internet and it's accurate to 200 milliseconds, which sounds very pathetic really compared to, say, an atomic clock. I reckon 200 milliseconds is pretty good. It's yeah. not too bad. But in the scheme of things, we think, sure, being accurate to a few seconds, 200 milliseconds, whatever, but GPS is something that needs an incredibly accurate clock. When we've got satellites, and there's usually 24 satellites up in the air that are serving our GPS needs so that we can see as a human on the ground with our GPS device, whether it be our phone or our car, we need to be able to see four satellites to get an accurate reading of where we are. And that uses trilateration, which I mentioned a minute ago. So effectively, we're driving around, we're looking at that, and those satellites have got clocks that are very accurate to within 14 nanoseconds, an accuracy level they're, they're at, and then they feed information to our GPS and tell us exactly where we are. Now, that's all well and good, and so we go about our day and we've got that accuracy of clocks. But one of the things that's really important is to try and get that accuracy as we go further and further into deep space. Yeah, and we're now at a stage where we're sending probes deep into space to we go are. and check stuff out. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, those clocks on satellites are kept accurate, not just by the fact they've got an accurate clock on board, which they do have, but they keep checking back to Earth and say, hey, I've got the time as, and back comes a response from Earth, no, you idiot, you're out by nanosecond, fix up your clock, will you? <laughs> so twice a day, those satellites come back to Earth and check their times, which sounds a bit of overkill, but again, one nanosecond, when you're trying to detect a location, when those radio waves are travelling at the speed of light, yeah. one nanosecond is about 30 centimetres. So you can understand that you're out by a few nanoseconds, suddenly the location where you thought you were is out by 30 centimetres each nanosecond. When we start to go to space probes and think of Voyager 1, so Voyager 1, 1977, yeah, 77, it was, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. sent off. So it's at the moment somewhere in the vicinity of 23 million kilometres from Earth. Yeah, because it's actually left our the, the borders of our solar system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Where is that? How do we know where it is? It's still using that same concept. It's still sending back basically information, a stream of information, comparing it to clocks on the ground and sending that information back to say, where are you? Now, the atomic clock on that is accurate to a certain level, but again, it was only the accuracy level of 1977 because we haven't been able to send out a little probe and say, update your clock on there. <laughs> but if that clock was out by a little bit, so in other words, we're talking about clocks that might be out back in those days, one second every 100 years, then that probe, if it hadn't been updated, could be out by 132,000 kilometres. So where we think it is yeah. might be out by that sort of distance. 
What NASA's working on at the moment is a deep space atomic clock project. And again, that accuracy of one second every 40 million years is kind of the level that they're trying to achieve with a little tiny thing that's the size of a toaster. Now, we've got clocks on the ground that are accurate to one second within the life of the universe. But they're huge clocks. They're sort of bigger than a refrigerator-sized clocks. So to get something small enough to send off in a probe, that's the real objective at the moment of NASA, to get that level of accuracy in that small clock. Yeah, right. Now, when you're talking about inaccuracies and whatnot, this is not including the the dilation that we get, the time dilation from special relativity. Now, for I won't go into too much detail, but but for things like these deep space probes, they're travelling at, say, 30,000, somewhere between 30,000 and 50,000 kilometres an hour, which is very fast for a spaceship, but it's not relativistically fast. However, they will undergo some degree of time dilation because they are travelling fast. Yeah. So what you're talking about isn't to do with that. Well, it gets tricky because you've got all of these accuracies or level of stability, as they're called, in the clock. They're also taking into account the calculations needed for Einstein's special theory of relativity. Right. So on top of that, you need to have a very accurate clock then you need to have a couple of mathematicians hanging around doing nothing for, for a little bit of time to do the calculations to make sure that the clock is accurate, allowing for the little tiny percentage of the speed of light that they're travelling at to make sure when you're getting down to those nanoseconds, that's where it starts to count. The accuracy level of the clocks when they sent off Voyager was one second every 100 years. So you think that's pretty uh, accurate, one second every 100 years, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah, but again, that can be a huge difference in distance when you start to have something going out there for a number of years. Whereas now the clocks there at the level of accuracy they're at is one second every 14 million years. Nowhere near the atomic clocks on the ground, but not too yeah. bad when you send off into space. Wow. So the implications of being a little bit short on time, huh? Well, that's right. And again, even at one second per 100 years, just getting to Mars, for example, yeah. if that was the only accuracy level you had, you might be out where you're going to land your Mars cruiser, you might be out by 1,800 kilometres. So where you think you're going to land, mm. you're 1,800 kilometres to another point. This one's a real favourite of mine. I've got a lot I'd like to talk about here, Matt, but I'm going to let you tell us about this revolution of real meat that's never actually been in an animal. It's, It's all about lab meat. Well, actually, thank you for this one. I knew there was a little bit of action happening in this around the world, but I hadn't actually gone into it in detail. And you mentioned it to me last week that this is something you're quite interested in. So I went and did the research. My favourite part of the research was a quote I found from Sir Winston Churchill. Now, this was before he became Prime Minister, nine years before he became Prime Minister. He was asked to write an article called 50 Years Hence, and it was basically his vision of the future in 50 years' time. And he got his Nostradamus going there, and he he just, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and I won't read the entire 4,000-word article to you, (laughs) but I will read one, one sentence I'll read to you. He said, We shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. Wow. Imagine in 1931 thinking that... To have thought about that. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. I don't think people in 1931 were thinking about just growing a wing or a breast of a chicken. They were thinking about how do we grow more chooks so yeah. we can get eggs and actually kill them to eat them. Well, what if you could grow your wings without the bones in them? I always hate that little tip bit that you've got to get your teeth around. So, yeah. It's a good enough reason not to eat the wings. I just go straight <laughs> for the breast. But here is a situation where effectively we are doing that now. It has been going for a little while 
And the first commercial version of this was sold in a restaurant in Singapore at the end of last year. So people in that restaurant could buy a meat patty that was grown in a laboratory, not on an animal. And I think that's cool. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who are going to go, oh, no, I can't think of anything worse. But this is just, this is meat. It's not something that's artificial. It's been made with real animal cells, like so real muscle cells. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is, well, it's not going to replace uh, our, our traditional farming, but it's, it's going to certainly supplement it. It's going to augment it, definitely right. And the thing here is, the, the big news at the moment is, sure, end of last year it was being sold in restaurants, but very small quantities. In Israel, we've now got the first factory, it's just opened up, the first factory in the world that's specifically dedicated to growing meat in the laboratory. So they're now getting to the stage where we're looking at commercial quantities, and they're not quite commercial yet. At the moment, it's capable of producing 500 kilograms a day of cultured meat. That sounds like it's a lot. It sounds like a lot. To put it in perspective, Aussies consume 7,800 tonnes of meat per day. So 500 kilograms is a reasonable amount, but in comparison to what we eat. But again, this is the first laboratory. And that's one factory. One factory. They're only small at this stage because they're still learning how to get up to higher quantities. That's stage one. I imagine they've got many stages planned. The interesting part is that they can grow the meat 20 times faster than you would grow on a normal animal, and they generate 80% fewer greenhouse gases. Good for the environment, good for producing more meat. Now, we kind of think, oh, big deal. We can go and buy a steak from our supermarket. It's no big hassle from our perspective. But we are very lucky in Australia, if you like meat, that is. We consume about 110 kilos of meat per year across the entire nation. Every person in this country, on average, consumes about 110 kilograms. That's two and a half times the worldwide average. So most places around the world don't have anywhere near the level of access to meat that we do. Now, for some people, they don't care about that, um, might be vegetarians or vegans, but there's 90% of people in Australia who do eat meat. Again, think about this around the world. Think about places that you can't get meat. Think about places where you just don't have the land mass to be able to have sheep or cattle roaming around and then saying, let's put a factory in. Mm. And exactly as you said, you take meat, you take stem cells from an animal, the animal stays alive. The animal's not killed in this process. Mm. And they're fed the right medium, exactly as Winston Churchill said, and then that grows muscle fibre. We're also not wasting resources as well. Yeah, so the, the water that you're using is going into the product without any other wastage there. You're using the right mix of protein and carbohydrate and the right materials in order to make healthy meat. And from that, you're able to to get yourself, you harvest the meat without having to worry about any other production because the meat is sitting there within the Petri dish ready to go. Exactly right. Now, before we get every farmer ringing in and abusing us and telling us that we're terrible, we're going to destroy their livelihood, exactly as you said, I don't think this is going to be something that completely replaces it, but there are times when we have droughts in this country. Oh, and long droughts. Long droughts. So there are times when maybe having that ability to have additional meat production, probably see it more relevant in countries around the world that just don't have the Mm. meat production that we have. It probably doesn't taste the same. I haven't actually tried it yet, but it's not the same fibres of muscle because that muscle hasn't been worked while that animal's been walking around the paddocks. It looks more like mincemeat, like a hamburger patty type Mm. thing. So it's more that sort of structure. But who knows, James? what's wrong with getting some electricity injected across this while it's growing in a Petri dish? That's right, just getting a potential different across it and and changing that um, to make it flex. 
And uh, next thing you know, you've got muscle fibre. Yeah. Now, the only downside, which might be an upside, depending which way you look at it, is the meat is incredibly healthy. It's got all the same protein, all the nutrients that normal meat would have. It doesn't have the fat content, which I think is great. There are some people who love the fat content. Yeah, I've got to throw up my hand there. I'm sorry, Matt. Um, and you can seed it with um, fat tissue as well, fat Correct. cells. Yeah. yeah, you can create Let's face it, whatever we eat, it's just made up of atoms. Mm. If we can produce the same atoms in the same structure, then you've got the same thing. So if you want fat in your meat, then you can produce that in the factory. At the moment, they're not. They're making it incredibly healthy meat. Mm. So it's a really interesting thing. But I have got a major problem with it, one part of it. And this is a bit of an issue about labels. We know we've got <laughs> a few different labels out there at the moment. We know we've got vegan and vegetarians. We know we've got pescatarians, flexitarians, politarians, fruitarians, climatarians, Reductarians. That's not enough names. Surely there's a longer list than that. My goodness, that's a long list of names, I've got to say. I need <laughs> now a new Aryan that will cover someone that eats lab-produced meat. I don't know what it is. Let's put our and, minds to it. And only lab-produced meat. And yeah. only lab-produced meat, obviously. <laughs> that would be the only one. And then, see, flexitarian I like, because flexitarian sounds like you're flexible. You'll yeah, just eat whatever's put in front of you. So I like the idea of flexitarian. But there are a lot of Aryans there. Maybe one of our listeners could send in their idea of what the Aryan name would be for someone who eats lab-produced meat only. <laughs> when words just won't say what you want to say, well, folks, in 2021, there's always emojis. But what happens when you just don't have the right emoji? Stop the press. Surely there is an emoji for everything by now. Well, we need to recognise just how important emojis are with, I don't know, a special day or something perhaps. Matt, what have you got for us on this story? Well, I've got to say, James, I've got to compliment you here. I was very impressed with the last message I received from you when we are organising today that uh, you used probably more emojis than letters in the alphabet in the <laughs> message you sent to me, so you're, you're really getting into the emoji thing. Well, I thought, I thought, yeah, the emoji alphabet is pretty uh, broad right now. And, it is, and, and, and I love my... the fact that you type in a word and it automatically gives you the emoji for that. You don't even have to think about it now. Yeah, yeah. So there was a World Emoji Day, and I do apologise to our listeners, we missed it. I should have told our listeners about oh, the sad face. That's, that's, thank you, James. Yeah, <laughs> I should sad have told face our crying, that, rolling with laughter. Perhaps. That, that there was a World Emoji Day coming up. We've missed it now. We'll have to wait till next year, but that's okay because there's a Unicode consortium, and they are responsible for emojis across the world. You thought it was just oh, thank God. your that's right. Thank <laughs> goodness we've got them. You thought it was just your Android operating system or your iOS or even maybe your computer that worked out these emojis, but there's a consortium. And one of the things that I find fascinating with the internet is that we can have laws in our city or our state or our country, but the internet doesn't really recognise boundaries. It does a little bit. There are some censorship protocols that go on in some countries, but generally the internet says, you know what, I don't care about countries, international borders, I just, I'm there, I'm everywhere. So some of these consortiums, some of these organisations that exist have to be multinational, truly international organisations. And this is another one of them. The Unicode Consortium decides internationally on the emojis that are required. It goes through a panel, it goes through on public exhibition, all sorts of things. So hang on, you're inferring here that some emojis get the knockback. Some get rejected. (laughs) Right. Okay. I just thought... Have the idea, present the emoji, 
move on. No, you don't have too many emojis. I mean, what would happen then? We'd just get emoji emojied out. Maybe, I'm not sure. But there is, this is important too, there is a reference site. You can actually go and look at Emoja Media and they will give you some of the finalists. So some of the ones that have been broken down. So some people, not only do they get rejected, some of the emojis don't even make it to the finalist list. How embarrassing. So there's a finalist list. You can go to Emoja Media, check that finalist list out. From those finalists, the consortium chooses the new emojis that will be added to the library of emojis that are out there now. Voting happens in September, so you've still got time to go and have a look and put your views forward because they want to hear from the public. I can imagine being on the panel, there's a fair bit of prestige there, but I can't imagine going home at the end of the day thinking, I've decided who gets what emojis. <laughs> how, do you tell, how do you tell your kids, Dad, what do you do for a job? Well, oh. I decide the little tiny image of two millimetres in size that people can see. I'm really making a difference in the world That's here. Right. Well. <laughs> so check that site out, Emoji Media. There's a whole bunch of different ones on the finalist list. I can run through a few. They've got different new emojis for princess and prince. You've got different handshake, 15 different handshake skin tone combinations. You've got not only a pregnant woman, but you've got pregnant person, pregnant man, you've got a whole range of different things coming. Go and have a look, just it blows me away. The new low battery symbol, a new disco ball, a face holding back tears, a saluting face, a melting face, the list just goes on. <laughs> and only some of these, James, only some will make it to our phones in the future. Oh, look, I'm hearing the uh, the slogan, <laughs> what John Rest rejects, you get only the best, <laughs> only the best of the emojis. All right. <laughs> Walking at buying an electric vehicle because you're worried about lengthy charge times? What if the vehicle was charging while you drove? How about this, Matt? Well, some people think that you can get perpetual motion, don't they? They mm. have this crazy idea. And no, lots you can't of, invent energy. That's right. Lots of YouTube clips about exactly that. Hey, we've got perpetual motion. We can go forever. And so it sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Charge as you drive. What have you been drinking, James? That just seems mm. like crazy stuff. But there are several countries around the world now that are building trial sections of road, hopefully rolling it out big picture, but at the moment just trial sections, where they've actually got charging coils underneath the road. So as you drive your electric vehicle along the road, it does actually charge your electric vehicle as you drive. Now, obviously, (laughs) it's getting the energy from somewhere else. It's not creating energy. As we know, it can't be created or destroyed. It just changes form. So it is actually getting the energy from somewhere else. It's getting it from the grid and presumably from renewables. But it's a bit like your mobile phone that you can wirelessly charge. You're using Faraday's law of induction. You're sitting a phone down on a charging pad, and the two don't have any wires that connect them, but it's creating electric signal or electric circuit in the second device, the phone that sits on top. Yeah, you just need an alternating current there. Absolutely Changing right. magnetic flux, and off you go. Yeah, so with a car at the moment, if you own an EV, you can buy as an aftermarket accessory a charging pad that you put in your garage. You can mount a little induction pad underneath your car that's very thin, doesn't really add much to the ground clearance or take away much from the ground clearance. And as you drive in the garage, you just pull up over the charging pad and it starts charging your car. Bada that's bing, pretty bada cool. boom. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So that's convenient. But then when you apply that same concept to a road, then you drive along and you start to charge up as you're driving along. And the charging rate is higher than you can drive. So in some of the trials so far, they're talking about being able to charge your car at roughly the rate of about 400 kilometres of charge per hour of time you're over that road. Yeah, right. You obviously can't drive at 400 kilometres an hour legally anyway. <laughs> so, so while you're driving, and again, you'd probably use it in a certain area where it was a fairly busy area and traffic was slow, so you're on that road for longer. And I did a couple of quick bits of analysis on, say, in Sydney, 
Sydney, the commute times and the drive times in Sydney, the average commute time in Sydney is about 50 minutes. So someone's sitting in their car for yeah, about 50 minutes right. yeah. on their way to work, and they travel only about 20 kilometres in that time. So they're not travelling very far. Yeah. So imagine if you had a section of road on there that you were on for, say, half an hour, and you're driving, obviously, in that time less than 20 kilometres. So you might use up, say, 15 kilometres of charge while you're travelling on that bit of road, but you added... 200 kilometres of charge to your batteries while you're and on you're that section of road. you're ching you've cashed in. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah, so this is happening at the moment in Indiana, in the US. We've already got some trial roads in some other places. Norway, no surprise there. Mm. Number one location in the world for concentration of EVs. You've also got it in Sweden, South Korea, Italy. They've got different versions of it and they've got different concepts. There's one place in Norway, for example, that's not rolling it out along the road where people drive. They're rolling it out in certain parking areas, in certain parking spots, and also in taxi ranks. And I thought the idea of taxi ranks was pretty cool because the idea is you're sitting there waiting to pick up your next fare. You don't want to get out, plug in your charge. Oh, as soon as someone comes along, Murphy's Law says, I've got to unplug and get straight into it. You just have automatic charging with some sort of charging pad underneath the taxi rank. As soon as they pull up, it starts charging. If they're there for five minutes or half an hour or an hour, there's no inconvenience for them or the passengers. As soon as they drive off the charging pad, the charging stops. So this is the sort of place we're going now. Yeah, wow. I actually get asked all the time, James, the first question I get asked when someone talks about one of my electric vehicles is, how far will it go? The second question they ask is, how long does it take to charge? Imagine saying, I never have to charge it because the, the road charges it for me. Imagine saying, I never stop at a charging station or in the old days a petrol station. It just charges for me as I drive. This is pretty cool. You know, there's a bunch of people out there right now that are going into meltdown now because who's going to make any money out of this? How can we make money out of this? Well, I imagine that the only way you do it is to have a toll on the road that you drove on mm. or there might be a toll on a certain section of that road. Some of the trials have been doing have been involving trucking companies driving over these sections of road that are charging up for them and then it's actually metered back in the trucking company they've got it in their actual vehicle itself so it's metered so they actually pay as they go so it's a system that you're only paying for it while you're charged I reckon someone will work out how to charge it for it because they want to know how they can make money out of it you're spot on there but that's not really, in, from my perspective, it's really about the technology there. Yeah, it's We're, amazing technology. It is amazing technology. What a direction. Yeah. So anyway, pretty cool stuff and rolling out to a road somewhere not in Australia soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand in Scandinavia they're also um, developing solar-powered roads as well. So, you know, put the two and two together, this is going to be fantastic. We have talked about those before, but that would be mm. a, a very cool combination of solar panel roads mm. that are giving you some electricity to put into the grid to then give you induction charging as you drove. It's a perfect sort of environment, isn't it? There you go. Now, have you heard that urban myth about Walt Disney's head being frozen cryonically? Uh, Sorry to burst your bubble, but it's just a myth. What is not a myth, though, is that there is the opportunity to freeze your bits so you can be woken up later in future to solve whatever problem that, that was going to be your demise. What I'm talking about here is people are choosing now to be potentially cryonically frozen so that when they die, on that moment, they can be frozen and then brought back to life later on. Matt, where do I sign up? <laughs> Sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? I'm not sure I want to live forever, but first of all, we'll just define cryonics and cryogenics. Yeah, yeah. They're two words that are often mixed up, and people often refer to this sort of thing as cryogenics. Myself. There you go. Cryogenics is the study of very low temperatures. 
cryonics is what we're talking about here, but you use low temperatures to put someone into a cryonic state, which is why I think there's a confusion between the yeah, two so words. So you use cryogenics to achieve your cryonics. Perfect. Excellent. Exactly right. So you can impress people at the next local barbecue <laughs> right, when people are talking that. about cryogenics. No, no, it's cryonics. So this is really interesting. And at the moment, there's a bargain basement price. It's normally $150,000, James, but at the moment, you can get in at a founder's fee for only $50,000. Wow. This is the first bargain. facility we'll see here in Australia. Obviously, there are facilities overseas. And I used to always hear the joke about Walt Disney as well being in suspended animation. Boom, boom. <laughs> but in Australia, there is no facility at the moment. They're still finalising some of the government approvals. I don't know how you do that because there's obviously no precedent for that. So that would be a pretty difficult yeah. task to go through. But they are making promises that they will freeze you, but no promises that they'll bring you back later on. <laughs> <laughs> the director of this organisation says, we don't know if you can do it. It looks great in the movies. We hope we can do it one day. But at this stage, well, we'll just, we'll keep you there. We'll keep you in some sort of suspended or frozen state. But that's as far as our guarantee goes. Because the trick is bringing people back from that state, even when they were, you know, let's say you froze something that was healthy. We're able to do it with embryos. We know that we can uh, bring embryos out of that uh, cryonic um, state, but um, they've got young cells that can be healed really, really quickly and easily, and they don't have as many as what we do. I think um, one of the issues is being able to stop yourselves from from turning to mush on the inside when your water in your cells um, starts to rupture your cells. That's right. And they've been able to do it, as you say, embryos. The other thing they've been able to successfully do it with, which is a great sign for the future, is Russian roundworms. Okay. So, th- so the Russian roundworms have been able to do it, so surely we're not too <laughs> far away. The thing that I think about is when you see those science experiments where you take a leaf of lettuce and it's in a nice, not solid state, but it's a formed state. It sits there in a nice cup and you put it in some liquid nitrogen and you freeze it and then you let it thaw out again and it just flops down into a floppily mm. sort of green bit of mush. And I assume... I don't have the technical details to say that. Mush. Mush. (laughs) I assume that what happens there is that those bits of water inside the lettuce leaf expand as water freezes and then that breaks down that cell structure. In a yeah, it's because they form that hexagonal shape that you see so commonly in, in snowflakes and things like that. Yeah. yeah, and so that's okay for a leaf of lettuce, but for the human body, given the fact we're about 70% water, it probably wouldn't go so well for us. I don't know how they're solving that problem. I don't think they know how they're solving that problem. Mm. All they guarantee, James, is that we will freeze you. <laughs> <laughs> we will keep you frozen. The other thing I find interesting about this is the facility has got some people that have signed up so far, 27 investors at the bargain basement price. And the facility they're building, which is halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, is a building that will house approximately 800 people, up to 800 people they're saying they'll mm. have in a chronic state in there. They'll have that looked after 24 hours a day. There'll be a caretaker there 24 hours a day. I'm not sure that I'd want the job of the night shift in a location that had 800 people in some sort of cryonic state. I just think that'd be a little bit freaky to walk around and look at these people and, I don't know, it'd be a bit eerie, I think. Considering that's a job that uh, we're going to need to fill for the next, I don't know, however many, 100 years, 200 years, 400 years, yeah. I don't know, and I don't, that's the one thing I couldn't find out in my research, how long they think you'll be in that state for. Where do you sign to say, bring me out after... 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, whatever. I was watching a show called 100 recently, and in that they had people, it was obviously science fiction, so they were just putting people to sleep and bringing them back 20 years later. So easy. It's so easy. If only we could do the same. But in that particular episode, they had one guy that had lived for several hundred years, but he just slept for 20 years. They'd wake him up, give him an update. He'd give the direction to go in. They'd put him back to sleep again. 20 years later, they'd wake him up again. How do you go through that process when you have no idea if they can bring you back? How do you say... 
after 100 years, give up on it and just go and bury me? I mean, what do you do? <laughs> Where are the rules around this? I have no idea. Well, I don't think you're going to be arguing too much if something goes wrong either. So it's just <laughs> that's right. in case of someone's just made a nice 50000 bucks from you. Yeah, exactly. And you're right, actually. Who knows what happens afterwards? I suppose you'd have to have some people looking at it afterwards to say, yeah, no, no, you said you'd keep him in that state for at least a little while. How hard are those great-grandkids going to fight for you if you don't, <laughs> if you never met them? Or great-great-great-grandkids, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting anyway. Now, the next story is very cool and a testament to modern innovation and sustainability. Turns out that Tokyo's Olympic medals are made from recycled electronics. What's this about? Well, I would almost say only in Japan because Japan has got a great history in electronics, but it was actually first done back in Vancouver for the Winter Olympics of 2010. So it happened then, much smaller scale because obviously fewer winter medals are given out than summer medals. Mm. But this is a really good thing where... The, the whole concept was take some of those old electronics and turn them into metals. Now, if we go back a bit, James, just a bit of history here. Back in the Olympics in 1904, 08 and 1912, if you won a gold medal, you would have taken it to a pawn shop because they were gold. The <laughs> gold medal itself that you won was pure gold and the country that was hosting those Olympics, they had to, as part of the cost of hosting the Olympics, had to provide pure gold medals. I assume they were pure silver and pure bronze, but that didn't matter that much because they're not as expensive, obviously. And if you so, but nowadays you see you see the, the winners all biting into their medals for their f- official photos and stuff. I love it. I love right. it. Um, and that goes back to the prospectus, doesn't it? Because you would <laughs> fool's gold. If someone painted some metal that was not gold, a gold colour, and said, here, buy some gold off me, gold's actually quite soft. soft. So they would bite into right. it to see if it was actually, what a very scientific way of testing to see if it was gold. Maybe they should have checked the density, weighed it, and checked the volume of like it or something. Archimedes did all the time. Ago. Yeah, maybe yeah. that would make more sense, but biting into it looked pretty cool. So yeah, you're right, you have modern athletes still biting into it, time on a tradition, I'm sure. But I did the actual costing and looked at the minimum size of a gold medal or any of the medals has to be a certain size. And if you looked at that minimum size back in 1912, if it was pure gold, in today's money, it was worth about $13,000. So if you had that gold medal back in 1912, you might have said, hey, this is great. I'll go and hock that and get some value for the metal that's in that particular medal. 1916, World War I, Olympics were cancelled. 1920, someone said, you know what, this just isn't sustainable. We're going to give out more and more medals at each Olympics. We're going to increase the number of sports. We've got all sorts of things. Tiddly Especially when you bring in uh, skateboarding and BMX riding and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. no disrespect to the people who have won medals in no, skateboarding. Congratulations BMX. To well done. It's not your traditional sort of sports that you would typically tend to see in the Olympics. But yeah, it's not going to be sustainable to have gold in all those. So there are requirements now. Every gold medal has to have at least six grams of gold. So it's still got gold in there. Yeah, but so obviously they've got a standard there. They've got yeah. a standard. It's got to be 92 two and a half percent silver but if you break down the cost of those metals now it's only worth about eight hundred dollars not thirteen thousand dollars that's a bit better but in japan they said let's take some old electronics and turn them into the metals so they gathered about five million cell phones they gathered in total about forty-seven thousand tons of tech waste they extracted from that 30 kilograms of gold three and a half tons of silver and 2.2 tons of bronze. And from those components, they then made all the medals, the 5,000 medals that we just gave out during the Olympics. Well, we didn't give them out, James. <laughs> you and I didn't give them out, but community society gave them to the athletes at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. So those 5,000 medals were all made from typically cell phones and some other e-waste. So I thought it was quite nice. It makes me very, very proud to think that Ariane Titmus might be uh, carrying a little bit of my old Nokia <laughs> Uh, around the neck. (laughs) Absolutely. And so I think that's pretty cool. But it started me thinking actually about 
globally waste and just electronic waste in general. So we actually generate 55 million tonnes of global e-waste each year, mm. which is a big number. Mm. So the 5 million tonnes they got of mobile phones for Tokyo was only a drop in the ocean, really, in terms of the total e-waste. That's increased by 21% over the last five years. So it is a major problem. Coming up with ways to recycle it, I think, is a great idea. And I think what we'll do as time goes on is we'll find better ways to recycle and it'll be cheaper to recycle than it will to be go and extract that metal in the first place. But it also got me thinking about batteries for cars. One mm. of the most common things, whenever I post something about an EV, or even when we do our tech talk and we sometimes vaguely mention EVs every now and again, James. Once or twice, I think I remember doing it. <laughs> That's right. In the past. People are quick to jump all over it and they say, oh no, what about in 10 years' time when this EV is retired on the batteries users and you've got to go and bury all that terrible heavy metals. They always claim heavy metals. I don't know why they claim heavy metals mm. in the, the modern well, battery. Lithium. Lithium's not a heavy metal. But anyway. No, yeah, that's yeah. right. So this is a real issue. And there's a couple of things that I take exception to there. When you go and buy a new petrol-powered car, no one says, what about in 250,000 kilometres? You'll have to go and throw out that engine because it'll be all worn out. No one really worries about what you do in the engine in five years' time. Plus, as the engine wears out, as the rings get a bit loose in the cylinder and you start burning a bit more petrol than it should or a bit more pollution, no one says, what about all that that's happening? Mm. And then I think you, you think about things like... Sump oil. Like, oh, well, I don't know. what If you can recycle some oil, perhaps you can. But but there seems to be, uh, yeah, whenever I change my own oil, I was thinking, what, is, what am I going to do with this sump oil? And there, I think there are ways to recycle, but no one says, oh, no, in the life of this engine, it's going to chew up 50 litres of sump oil. What's that going to do to the environment? But when it comes to batteries in electric vehicle. That seems to be the easy attack mode, if you like. And so a couple of things around that. I did a bit more research on it. And so you might get, rather than say 250,000 kilometres out of a petrol engine before it's got to have a major overhaul or throw it out, you probably get more like 500,000 kilometres out of batteries. So it's a lot yeah, longer lifetime. Long but more the, to the point, you don't use a battery for a set amount of time and then it just stops working. It just slowly degrades over time. So, for example, you might have your battery down to, say, 95% of what it could do when it was new after it's done 100,000 kilometres. After mm. 300,000 kilometres, you might be down to, say, 90%. So you might choose at some point in time your battery degradation has gotten to a point where you go, you know what, I'm not happy with 80%, 70%, 50%, whatever it might be, of the battery life. In other words, the range of this, it's time to replace my battery. But you don't throw it out. You don't go and bury it with all those heavy metals, you go and repurpose it. So what they do mainly with batteries after they've had a useful life in a car is they get used in a building, for example. You're not so worried about the battery degradation there. If you're only getting 70% of the battery in a building, that's okay because you're not carrying around that battery like you are in a car mm. where it's more important to have all that battery life. So you get that repurposing. That's the first thing they'll do. And then the second stage they'll go through is actually recycling. But already manufacturers are at the point where they can crush down the metals that are in a battery and extract 97% of that to be put back into, guess what, another battery. <laughs> so none of those heavy metals are buried and wreck the environment. And I still don't know what heavy metals are in a modern battery. Maybe I should do an analysis and see, because I don't know. I mean, yeah. you tell me, James, nickel, lithium, manganese, some of these, they're not I don't think metals. any of those count, no. So no. I don't know what these heavy metals are that are destroying the environment when we bury these batteries, which we're not, in fact, burying. So recycling in society is important. Recycling electronics is really important. Keeping all these things that we use and having some sort of secondary life for them is important, but don't pick on the poor old EV batteries. I don't think they're the culprit here. 
Well, we're heading into um, a world where sustainability is not an afterthought. Sustainability is at the front of developing technology and, and repurposing goods is a really big thing. I think we've woken up to that. And mm. I really like it when you see some creative uses of that repurposing, like the Olympic Games, where we took some old electronics and turned them into metals. There's lots of those things, I think, that are quite creative uses or repurposing or recycling. And again, I think now when you're manufacturing something, as part of that manufacturing process, you should be saying, I'm going to need these components to make this, and this is the life cycle of that, and then at the end of the life cycle, this is what I'll be able to do with it. Mm. Have you missed a parcel lately, folks? Did you receive a text letting you know? Warning, parcel delivery texts are now the most common con trick. And here I was thinking I was the only one. <laughs> Tell us about these contracts, these flu bots. This is the thing that I mentioned at the very beginning of the show. The flu bot is the major malware infecting every country just about around the world. Mm. Now, the interesting part is that they've only really just come to Australia. They've been in Europe now for some time. And in Europe, they were focused on parcels. You've missed a parcel. Hey, you want to get your parcel? There's a parcel waiting for you, that type of thing. Yeah, I've had a dozen of those just recently, yeah. And so in Australia, they seem to be more focused on voicemail, but in Europe, it was really around parcels. And so you get the message and you say, oh, okay, click on the link. And that's not an uncommon thing to do. You click on the link and you'll go and look at the information. When you click on that link, it then says to view the status of your parcel, you just need to have this app on there. Click on this link to get the app. And so for many people, they think, oh, okay, I must need an app to do that. I'll click on the app. Mm. But when you click on that, that actually infects your phone with some malware, which does a couple of things. The first thing it does is look through your contact list because we don't want all your friends missing out on this either. So (laughs) it sends the same message to all of your friends. Somewhere out there, I've got a friend who's clicked on the app. Is that what you're telling me? Not necessarily. That's a possibility. Right, okay. But what they also do is they just do random number generators. Yeah. So they're generating numbers continually and sending out those messages. Now, the interesting part here is that when someone talks about getting spammed email, you don't really care if you're a spammer about sending out millions, even billions of emails because the cost to send an email is zero. Mm. You need an internet connection, which is a minimal cost, and you can just go and send out millions and billions of emails. The difference with the text message is there's no easy way to send that for free, except your phone plan, James, has got free text messaging. So if I can get onto your phone and use your phone to send text messages, Mm. then that's great. If I'm just someone who wants to send bulk text messages to my customers, I've got to pay for that. But if I use your phone or someone else's phone or someone else's phone to do it, suddenly I've got free text messaging. Jeez, the crims are getting cheap these days. (laughs) Aren't they? <laughs> At I least pay sh- for your text messaging. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So the first thing is it sends out to people in your address book, and it also might send out messages to random numbers that it generates. The second thing it does, which is the scariest part, is it puts an invisible overlay on your phone. Mm. And what that does is sends to someone out there who's obviously setting up this malware every keystroke, everything that you type into your phone, <sighs> and everything that you see. So your good old-fashioned two-factor authentication, when you log on to your bank and your bank says, oh, I'll just make sure this is you, James, I'll send you a text message, you get your four-digit text code, six-digit text code, whatever it may be, and you're ready to type that into your bank, someone at the other end also sees that same message so they can try and get into your bank. So that's the real scary part with this. Now, you do notice when you pick it up because some strange things happen, and I've actually seen a few of our clients 
that have been infected by this particular malware and they can see it because some strange things start happening to their phone, the messages start to be a bit garbled, just things don't seem to be quite right and they are smart enough then to say something's happened here. Mm. But the thing you're really going to not like about this is it only affects Android phones. Oh, no! So you'll get the message if you're an iPhone because the scammers don't really know whether you've got an iPhone or an Android phone. But the actual link that you click on to try and install an app, it's actually an Android app it's trying to install. It's not an iPhone app it's trying to install. Uh, so you might get the messages as an iPhone user, but if you click on the link, and I'm not saying click on the link, but if you did click on the link, it would take you to something that would mean nothing to an iPhone. Whereas to an Android user, click on the link and click on the link again, and the next thing you know, you've infected yourself with malware. Goodness me. So it is quite incredible. And one of the things that I thought of when I was looking at this and just going through this is the sixth most famous computer virus in the world was the Anaconda virus. It was way back in 2001. And I remember it well because we had a lot of our clients at the time that were impacted by it and we had to clean up lots of computers. But the thing that really struck me was that after that virus took over the world and after that virus had a major impact on people across the world, six months later, they did a survey and they said, if you received an email that said anaconacova.jpg.vbs, would you still click on it thinking that it might be a picture of anaconacova? Now, this virus had wreaked havoc across the world. <laughs> 15% of people in the survey said, I'd still click on the link because it might be a photo of anaconacova. And so <laughs> that curiosity is what kills the cat. And that's <laughs> the problem here is that you get that message, whether it be you've missed a voicemail, you've missed a parcel, whatever it might be, People are so curious. Oh, I've got a parcel. Oh, fantastic. I wonder who sent me a parcel. I didn't order anything, but I wonder who sent me a parcel. And they go and click on the link. Uh, so many Homer Simpsons out there. It's not funny. <laughs> That's <true. laughs> They've got impulse only. But look, yeah, we, we keep hearing of these stories of people who fall for these scams. And the trick is for the fraudsters to just have enough enough cover to catch someone in a moment of weakness uh, and they can follow through with a sucker punch leaving reasonably intelligent people feeling totally stupid and well out of pocket. And the other thing is that people will see lots of spelling errors mm. and some people have commented to me going, well, surely they're making enough money out of this they could pay some English translator to just get their spelling right. But that's very deliberate because if the messages all were identical and they had the same message, the carriers would quite easily be able to block that sequence of characters. Mm. Anyone that gets a sequence of characters, we know that's a part of this scam, block that. What they do is they make spelling errors, mix it up. I've seen so many different spellings of voicemail, it's just incredible. Yeah. But they mix it up deliberately so it makes it so much harder for the carriers to then say, oh, when you see this sequence of characters or this sequence of characters and this sequence of characters, mm. then block it. And you don't want to block people's legitimate text messages as well. So it's a challenge for everyone. Well, if it didn't work, we wouldn't keep getting these stupid text messages. At least that's what my pen pal tells me. He's a Nigerian prince, you know. <laughs> He's really, really wealthy. Looking forward to giving you some money one day. <laughs> Let's get started, though, with a story for people who like to get their tech in their face. And I mean literally... 140 inches is a whole lot of inches of television, particularly if you're talking about television screen, folks, 140 inches. But that sort of screen needs a fair sort of a wall space, and not everyone's got that. Matt, there's got to be a better way around this, surely. 
there's got to be a better way. We have talked about TVs a little bit. I don't mean to talk about TVs a lot. We've talked about a 1,000-inch TV, which probably isn't going to fit in most lounge rooms. And even a 140-inch, the height of a 140-inch diagonal, is getting to the stage where you haven't got much room left above and below the TV. It's probably about a 1.8-metre height of a TV. Yeah, it's a big rectangle there. It's yeah. a big rectangle. So when you put that in your lounge room, that might get to the point where... I would actually have to agree with my wife when she says that TV's too big, which she said to me every time I bought a new <laughs> TV over the last 25 years. I think I'd finally get to the point where I'd say, yeah, 140 inches, you're probably right, that is too big. But there's got to be a better solution. One of the things that happens with the TV is obviously the further away you get from the TV, the bigger you need it to be. You go to the cinema, you've got a huge screen there if you'd look at, at the cinema, but you're obviously sitting further away, unless you're like me, and you like sitting at the front and go side to side with your face <laughs> and really get immersed in the actual movie. Well, you've got to get your neck muscles down working there. And yeah, why not? It's a full workout. Yeah. That is. So... Rather than sit a few metres away from a TV, why not get really close? And I'm talking about up on your face. Put some glasses on that simulate a 140-inch TV. Now, this is, the latest, this is the latest coming out from a particular company at the moment that's just released a new pair of glasses, and they say the equivalent viewing is that of a 140-inch TV. You put the glasses on, you plug it into your viewing device, and sit back and enjoy the view. And get your square eyes going, yeah, Absolutely. right. Absolutely. <laughs> so can you just imagine that? You put it on, and rather than sit in your lounge room, because that's where you sit there and watch the TV, you go to another room in the house, go to the kitchen, lay in the bedroom, go out in the outside deck and enjoy the outside surroundings while you sit there and watch your favourite TV show. Now, they're actually quite slim for something that packs so much viewing pleasure. If you look at something like, for example, a set of AR or an AR headset, it's pretty big and bulky. You've got a lot of technology built in and then this big core that trails down and off mm. it runs and plugs into whatever device you're using and they get a bit hot and sweaty. They're a bit gunky, actually, when you take them off and hand it to someone else to have a go. It's a bit <laughs> disgusting there. You're wiping the sweat off. With these, they're actually relying on the device it plugs into to provide all the picture quality and the power. So when you look at them, they look like just a slightly chunky pair of glasses, a bit like a big set of uh, maybe sunglasses. They've got speakers built into the arm, so you're getting the sound oh, right next to, to ear, yeah, right. straight to the ear. So you've got full stereo sound, and it's only been made possible by the fact that you've got such good technology in the glass themselves. So it's a micro LED. So essentially, each glass simulates a HDR viewing screen, but the micro LED is a secret here. If you couldn't get those pixels small enough, it would be hopeless being close to your eye because yeah. obviously it would just be blurry. The, yeah. the images or the pixels would be too large. But the fact they can get those pixels so small now, you can sit there and Goodness watch these me. glasses. I tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting visions here now of a whole bunch of naughty year eight students showing up to class with these suspicious diagnoses of myopia. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, no, sir, I've got new, these new glasses. I've just got to wear them during class. And, That's yeah. right. And then they <laughs> burst out laughing or get a grin on their face yeah. during the class. <laughs> <laughs> Are these year nine boys again? Is this the, yeah. your problem? Is that the problem area? Oh, there? they're the curse of every teacher in the <laughs> world, right. aren't they? Yeah. So there's a few other things that I found interesting. One of the things that I got excited by in this concept is that not only can you watch TV, but anything that you need a 140-inch screen for. So now we're talking about a computer monitor. And back in the old days when we used to have those things called planes and you'd fly from place to place, I used to always be that really annoying person who'd get on the plane and I'd pull out my notebook, I'd say hello to the person next to me and then start working on my notebook. But it was always a little piddly screen compared to what I have in my office, yeah. so that was a bit of a struggle. And you'd always get these sticky big eyes, the person <laughs> next to you, maybe the person behind you. And I didn't have the codes for nuclear weapons or something on my screen, but it just felt a bit, mate, 
got something yeah. to look at. This is my screen. <laughs> so it was probably pretty boring. It's probably answering some emails or something as simple as that. So now you're going to be sitting there staring into space, though. It's just staring into space and typing away on your keyboard, just tapping away. And, and people would go, what is that crazy <laughs> person over there and doing? And why is he staring at me? And the thing I started to do the calculations for was how many rows and columns in a spreadsheet could I fit into a 140-inch screen? Because just imagine the spreadsheet you could look at <laughs> while you're on the plane looking through these glasses. It's a really interesting development and something that I think we'll see a lot more of. And they're incredibly cheap. We talk about 140-inch TV. We're starting to talk about 50 grand minimum, probably $100,000. You talk about these, they're less than $1,000 for a pair of glasses that effectively gives you that. Now, I understand that in your lounge room when you're all sitting around watching TV together, it mightn't be that enjoyable that everyone's sitting there watching their own thing, but at $1,000 or less than $1,000 each, you can buy a few to give you the equivalent of a 140-inch screen on your actual wall. The other part is they've got a USB-C connector, so anything that outputs a video signal on USB-C, you can plug into these glasses. So nothing fancy required, just Mm. something that outputs USB-C. So that can be an iPad, that can be a computer, that can be a set-top box. So any sort of device that puts out USB-C video signal, you can have with these. So really interesting development. (laughs) And literally, guys, we are going to get ourselves a set of four eyes if we're not careful. Now, this is a great story. Air guitar. It's an art form of its own. And at one stage, you know, or another, we've all had a go at it. Those killer riffs clear in your ear. You can hear them as you blast out those brain-melting solos. Well, what if everyone else could hear it too? And that's you actually playing it. Matt, here, we got an idea that can we maybe take on the road here? Start up a band? <laughs> I think so, James. Now, a personal question here. What's the song that you play in your head when the air guitar's going? It always starts off with probably um, the, the opening riff, um, uh, Sweet Child of Mine, you know, a bit of gun, Gunners, yeah? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, got to yeah. be heavy, hasn't it? If, yeah, you, if yeah, you're yeah, going to play yeah. air guitar properly... And you've got to imagine yourself with a mullet. <laughs> Absolutely, it's compulsory. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an example of someone solving their problem in necessity is the mother of invention. In this particular case, there was a student at college and he decided, because his friends could play guitar pretty well, that he'd learn the guitar. So he started trying to learn the guitar and his friends, his roommates at college said, actually, if you want to learn the guitar, you can't be our friend anymore because you're so bad at it. We want you to leave the room, leave the college. You've been our friend for about three or four years. That's right. Come back. back. When you get your 10,000 hours under your belt, then come back and see us. But in the meantime, can you go away? So he gave up the guitar, but he still had the dream of it. So he came up with the idea of building a plectrum, a air guitar plectrum or pick that actually linked via Bluetooth to your phone to then actually play some tunes. So when you're there, and think about the technology (laughs) in this, you couldn't have done this 10 years ago. The actual plectrum is sensitive enough that it knows when you're doing a downstroke or an upstroke or how fast you're moving it. Then it's got Bluetooth because, of course, if it's going to be any good, it's got to have Bluetooth. Mm -hmm. It's got Bluetooth to your phone to then pick up on your movements of the pick to then play whatever sound comes out of there. (laughs) And then it gets better because you can choose what chord you want to play on your phone. So if you want to get really (laughs) tricky, you choose a chord and you start strumming away with that or making any movements that you want and then start changing your chords on your phone. I think there'd be a real skill in playing this quite cleverly in terms of picking the right chord and playing and away you go. 
I don't know if it's got that famous chord at the beginning of the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. You know the one that yeah. just sounds terrible and out of tune? I don't know that Paul McCartney's ever actually told us what chord that is. <laughs> it might not have that chord, but it's got all the simple and difficult to play chords yeah, right. on your phone because you don't have to get your fingers wrapped around that chord. No. You just press just a different button on your phone and then start playing it. This is two examples today, James, where I've been sucked in. This is that impressive that I hope my son doesn't listen to this one because I've bought this already for his Christmas <laughs> present because I was that impressed. My, my son plays a guitar already and, and plays it reasonably well, but I just think this is too much fun that I've got to find some no. sort of present for him. Guitar hero, eat your heart out. Look, mate, <laughs> if I can't be in your band, can I at least be your roadie? Yeah, that's right. Carry around this little tiny thing. Just it's carry a, your phone. It's about the size of a matchbox <laughs> and your phone. Carry those around. But you don't have the big muscles like a roadie then if you're doing that. You're just carrying around this little tiny thing. <laughs> but at least I get to play it in front of the crowd. Absolutely. Before you know, I get to tune it. <laughs> tune the air guitar up. I like it. I like it. Let's get cracking with one for our uh, avid recreational cyclist, a bike tech that's getting souped up. You may know about fly-by-wire, folks, but Matt, you're going to tell us about a new system for bicycles, ride-by-wire. Yeah. A remote-controlled bike is not a thing, though. What's going on here, Matt? It is really exciting, and we're walking along a path now where I have this memory of one of my daughters, my youngest daughter, her greatest trauma happened not far from where we are right now, James. It was one day we were out riding our bikes and a few of the kids were with me. We decided to have a bit of a race and we took off and had a bit of a race, got to the tree that we were racing to and looked around and my youngest daughter wasn't there. <laughs> Left one of her offspring for dead. <laughs> That's right. Now, I've turned back around and here she is sitting beside the path, bawling her eyes out, grease all over her hands and I got back to see her. What's gone wrong, darling? And of course the chain came off the bike. Oh, of course. She wanted to know what this stupid chain thing was, uh, why there was all and this the grease greasy on. mess that comes with it as you try to repair the problem. And then you cry and of course you wipe over your face with your greasy hands and that puts more grease over your face and you cry a bit more. That was me crying, not the, my daughter crying. <laughs> that was a nice little simulation we had back there too. Yeah. It was actually. Yeah. Yeah, not put on there at all. <laughs> so the thing that I looked at then, I talked to my daughter and said, why have we got these stupid chains? Well, before chains, you had things like the penny farthing. But oh, you needed yeah. a big wheel to get a bit of speed up because when it was a direct drive, when you just had a one-to-one -one ratio, your legs would be spinning at a million miles an hour trying to go at any sort of speed. So the logical solution was to put a big wheel on. When, in 1885, they started moving to what they called the safety cycle, suddenly you had a chain that connected the cranks to the back wheel and you can have a ratio yeah look i've got to go back to that penny farthing i just don't know how more people didn't die on those things <laughs> yeah <laughs> Holy. Well, i've seen footage of races on penny farthings and they look crazy <laughs> oh goodness me <laughs> so the safety cycle came along and of course that chain with the efficiency of the chain they talk about efficiency maybe up around the 98 percent mark of the power you're putting into the pedals getting to the back wheel yeah, so that right. all sounds fantastic but one of the limitations of a chain is you've got to get somewhere where you can get the cranks turning in vicinity of the back wheel and get a chain to connect them. Now on a two-wheeled cycle, that's not too bad, but when you start talking about the reclining bikes, and they're yeah, actually quite an efficient yeah. way to go about, then you suddenly get this really long chain or sometimes multiple chains connecting them. Or if you go to some places around the world where you've got, say, a little three-wheeler, four-wheeler that's a, like a little taxi type thing, you yeah, look underneath course, those, yeah. which I kind of do when I see those just because I'm interested in it, you see sometimes three sets of chains connecting the cranks to the back wheel. So it all yeah, gets too complicated. all this sort of energy uh, in, in the transfer there, yeah. And imagine that coming off, trying to climb underneath <laughs> that and get all these different chains connected. So Schaefer, which is a German company, has come up with a concept of generating power at the actual crankshaft, generating electricity, and then transferring that 
via electrical wires to an electric motor on either the back wheel or the front wheel or even the back wheels if you've got multiple wheels. Yeah, right. And you do lose a bit of efficiency. That was the first question I thought of. Well, what's the efficiency look like here? About 5% of efficiency is lost. Okay. But it's not about the efficiency. It's all about design, being able to open up the design mechanism. Well, and of course, this is the first prototype, so we might expect that with future prototypes, perhaps that efficiency might improve? Exactly right. And we're not talking about a lot here. We're talking about 5%. Yeah. Now, most of the mail that gets delivered around Australia by Australia Post, they're on some form of e-bike. This is the letters, not the parcels. And those e-bikes have actually got front-wheel drive. So they're a normal bike with a chain to the back wheel, but then they've got front-wheel electric motor to give them a bit of extra go and get up some hills. When you start to look at this, well, what would be the problem with having both wheels driving and you just oh, see yeah. they're pedaling in the middle? The resistance changes as you pedal to generate more electri less electricity to keep your cadence constant. And if you talk to Tour de France cyclists, then you're effectively talking about trying to get that cadence the same all the time. So yeah, those yeah, cyclists right. are typically probably 80 or 90 revolutions per minute. The idea of this is you keep your cadence constant, it's generating electricity, and that's all being fed to a battery, then being fed to a motor in the back or the front wheel or both back wheels, whatever it might be. So it really is changing the design concept. Yeah, and carbon wow. fibre did a huge amount for the design of a bicycle. The old traditional two triangles stuck together yeah. and welded up, yeah. that all went out the window when carbon fibre came along because suddenly you had something so strong and light. So much stronger, yeah. 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 And this, I think, will do the same for bicycles. Being able to put the motors and the cranks wherever is convenient, I think will do a huge thing for designer bikes. And of course, we're talking about e-bikes here. We're not talking about a traditional bike that you just have a chain connecting them, although you could replace it with that. But this is all about that e-bike revolution, which I think is coming. And as we get more and more people out of cars, maybe, and transport in different ways, I think you'll see more and more people using e-bikes. And this here, I just think is an absolutely brilliant solution. And no more excuses about the hills, huh? Well, I reckon it's bound to get more people out in the Treadley for sure. Here's another story for the aluminium hat wearers. That anti-radiation sticker that you bought and thought would protect you from that dangerous radiation emission from your phone. Well, I hope it's scratch and sniff, folks. At least then it might have some use. Matt, tell us how Amazon has made some more money for nothing. Well, that'd be a good use, wouldn't it? Scratch and sniff, that's about the most useful thing I've ever heard of for these stickers, James, because <laughs> there's certainly no way they're going to stop radiation. And what I don't understand here, James, is that if the stickers did what they claim to do, put this sticker on, it will protect you from those terrible electromagnetic fields that come out of your mobile phone. Mm. If they did protect you from that, the phone would be useless. If you put your phone in a little tiny Faraday cage to stop all the EMF coming out of it, then it wouldn't be able to get the signals to a mobile phone tower that might be several kilometres away, so it would be useless. And you would have yourself a paperweight. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> a paperweight that you might play some games on. Obviously not Epic Games because they're not on the App Store at the moment, but you wouldn't be able to do much with it in terms of communicate to the outside world. These smart dot stickers, there was some investigation done at the beginning of the year. And the Advertising Standards Authority, this is in the UK, said, you know what, Smart Dot, these stickers don't actually seem to do anything. You've got to stop making these claims about what they're doing. Now, here we are eight months later, and they're still making the same claims. The University of Surrey said, we'll go and do some testing on them. We'll get some highly sensitive equipment. We'll put a mobile phone there. We'll test the electromagnetic radiation coming out of that mobile phone. We'll put a sticker on. What the heck? We'll put a couple of stickers on <laughs> and we'll test the radiation again. And there's no surprise here, James. The amount of difference they detected was approximately... 
Zero. <laughs> yep. So there was no difference whatsoever between... And, and everyone fell over. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was no surprise there. But in their defence, the makers of the Smart Dot said, of course, the scientific testers with their fang-dangled equipment that goes beep in the middle of the night, that wouldn't detect any difference in it because they said that it wouldn't measure the harmonising effects of the stickers because they would require biological testing. So there you go. That's why the scientists what? with their equipment couldn't pick up anything. Of course. And they needed some crystals or something, didn't they? Yeah. They did. Right. Align them in the right way, throw the chakra down on the ground, who knows what. But <laughs> the message here is really any of those things that you see out there that protect you from AMF, that are going to protect you from these terrible mobile phones, we're getting more radiation from the sun. Every day we go out in the sun, mm. you, know, you would be able to tell me in greater detail, we're getting much more radiation from the but, sun. But the radiation we're getting from our phone is the wrong frequency. It's too low a frequency to be an issue. Exactly right. To use a scientific term, it's non-ionising radiation. So it's never going to move those electrons That's right. up to a higher level. Yeah, yeah. So be exposed to that as much as you like. Now, back in 1973, I think it was, that Dr. Martin Cooper made the first mobile phone call working for Motorola at the time. 73, we've had mobile phones. Now, sure, they weren't in great use then. Mm. But we've had mobile phones in use by enough people around the world now that if there was this great ah. cancer pandemic or some great health issue, we would see people all around the world being affected by this. And James, I've been using a phone, I've been using a phone, I've been using a phone for 30 years and it's never affected me, never affected me, never affected me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, folks, I'm joking. <laughs> a very poor attempt at a joke. Ah. But I think this is the thing, when you see these claims just apply a bit of common sense to them if it protected you against the radiation the phone would be useless obviously they're doing nothing the only thing they're doing is making your wallet lighter and the people i'd almost call them scammers james maybe it's too harsh on them because they're just maybe appealing to the gullible but they're lying in what they're doing they're lying in their claim looking for the placebo effect i think maybe yeah the placebo effect. maybe but i see people with them i see people with stickers with cases with all sorts of things that are protecting from the radiation and i start to have a conversation with them about non-ionising, I started the conversation with them about the radiation we get from the sun mm. and their eyes just gloss over and I throw my hands up in the air and I give up. They've done their internet research. That's right. Who am I to argue? So we can post those stickers into that file uh, for the ineffective solutions for imaginary problems. Is that right? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, maybe, maybe if they stuck some of those stickers on wind turbines, that it solves some problems there as well. <laughs> and sticky tape some crystals to it while you're at it and rub some essential oils on it. Oh, look, I'm going to start really offending people in a minute. I'm a bit worried about your crystals. You, you seem to have a bit of an affinity with crystals, James, more than I realised. Oh, I just haven't had them work as well for me. The, you know, I, I just need them to actually do something. Netflix has got the Koreans really wound up. An internet provider in South Korea reckons they're creating too much traffic. Netflix is creating too much traffic. So they've taken them to court. Matt, I was thinking about cancelling my subscription, but something I've missed clearly out of Netflix um, that I'm, I should be watching. You should be. Have you watched Squid Game yet? Not yet. Yeah, right. Well, you need but to I'm get onto it. But I'm going to now. Yeah, now that everyone's <laughs> onto it, it's the number one show in 90 countries at the moment for Netflix across the world. I can't believe that. So it's bigger than Game of Thrones, It is bigger than Game of Thrones. Wow. It's bigger than everything. Yeah, yeah. And I've watched a little bit of it. My kids have been watching a bit, and I've kind of come in and went, oh, yeah, it looks a bit too violent for me, and I've left it alone. But little did I know that everyone else loved that violence, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but here's a real challenge. Here's the question. The heart of this question is, who should be paying for the infrastructure that internet service providers need to provide internet access to consumers? I would have thought 
the internet service providers would have been the ones paying for it. That kind of makes sense. Mm. Content providers like Netflix, their job is to set something up for people to want to see. Just supply stuff. Exactly right. And then the internet service providers say, hey, Mr. Customer, we'll give you a connection to your home. We'll take care of the traffic between your home and the content providers, and that's it. But (laughs) SK Broadband in South Korea have said, that's all well and good until Netflix came along and just hammered our connections. Blew it away. Absolutely blew it away. And the data they gave said from 2018, from May 2018 till now, their internet traffic has gone up by 24 times. And they're blaming all that on Netflix. There might be some other things in there as well. And so they, I guess they see themselves as a bit of a toll booth. They, they need to have a toll booth there for the amount of traffic that's coming through yeah. on their highway. Yeah, and to me, I think, it's a, well, they're a bit out of line, really, in my opinion, because their job is to provide the connectivity. What you're connecting to, that's someone else's job. That's not SK Broadband's job. And yeah. the same way it's not Netflix's job to actually provide the highway for it to come down. Their yeah. job is to provide the content. Now, the unfortunate part for poor old Netflix, and I, I say that with a poor slight tongue in my cheek, the poor outcome for them is that the Central District Court ruled against Netflix. And I must admit, I wouldn't want to be taking on a South Korean firm in a South Korean court because I reckon my, <laughs> my, my cards will be slightly They've stacked got a against me. Advantage, yeah. Slightly, yeah. So they ruled in favour of SK Broadband and they said that you should pay a fee for usage. And the fee that we've calculated so far for 2020, for example, was US $31.55 million. So it wasn't nothing. Mm. It's mm. not a huge amount of money for Netflix, but it's not nothing. Part of the problem there for Netflix is that other companies like Facebook, like Amazon, like Apple, all do pay some internet service providers. Yeah, so they're a bit out on their own, although YouTube doesn't pay at the moment in South Korea. So YouTube and Netflix, who you could probably argue, or Google, who owns YouTube, obviously, you could probably argue that they're pretty big in terms of creating a desire to go and use the internet, but they're the ones that aren't paying. Amazon, Apple, they certainly, and Facebook, obviously, they certainly generate a fair bit of traffic Well, this is a new angle I'd never even considered before, but does it open the floodgates for other countries to now say, oh, hang on, Netflix, you've got a lot of money to be made out of this. I think we can tap into that, and if you want to use our our highway, then you're going to have to pay the toll booth. Well, interesting enough, in the US, there is one company that Netflix does pay some money to, Comcast, they actually have paid money to for the last seven years, but there is something they get extra for that. They've actually done a deal with Comcast where Comcast customers can get slightly better speeds than a normal internet service provider, so the Netflix shows can be looking better or they can do it in high definition, whatever it might be. So that's a deal they did seven years ago. So there is a slight bit of precedent there for Netflix paying, but they felt like they were getting something extra for what they were paying. In this scenario, it's just you're getting the normal traffic. You're getting what everyone else is getting, but we want you to pay for it. I don't think we've seen the last of this. It's only the first ruling so far. There'll be several more appeals to go. Solicitors have got to eat as well, so they'll have to go through a process there. But it is really interesting just to (laughs) see. Solicitors have got to eat the poor starving solicitors. (laughs) So it is interesting to see where that will all end up, though, because I think you're right, that just confuses, it muddies the waters completely across the rest of the world Mm. for what your job is, a content provider, suddenly you need to start paying for the internet service. No, that's not my job. That's the job of the consumer. (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. Squid Game. Get into it, apparently. Uh, If you haven't heard of it before now, you're a bit like me and out of the loop. Time to get into the loop. Get on the Netflix. (laughs) Trivia time, folks. Question number one. How long is the world's longest subsea power cable? And, part B of that question, why is it important for the future of the planet? And the answer, Matt, is... Well, let's go back a bit. Let's tease the listeners a little bit here. Let's go back, and there's some interesting stuff I know that we've talked about before 
when we go back to the beginning of electricity supply in the homes of... All the way back to Westinghouse and Edison, but yeah, yeah, big yeah. arm wrestle, yeah. And it was a great arm wrestle and two great innovators in different ways obviously had that battle. And we're talking about back in the late 1880s, 1890s, that this battle raged on. And part of that battle, of course, was DC versus AC. Yeah. And my understanding at the time, or in, in looking at the past history, is a little bit different to what it is now, in that AC won the day because it was easy to transform those voltages from low voltage to high voltage. And DC basically lost out, even though Edison talked about the dangers of AC and how terrible it was and yeah. all sorts of misinformation that Edison was spreading back in those days. It's a days. juicy story, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a great little bit of history there if you go through and look at it. But in the end, AC did win the day and General Electric effectively bought out Edison's company and went forward with AC. So you end up with Westinghouse with AC and Nikola Tesla was involved there with Westinghouse as well with AC. Mm-hmm. And of course then General Electric when AC, so everyone went AC, and that made sense, and we've moved forward a long way. But this long undersea cable that we're talking about is 724 kilometres long, to answer the question in terms of <laughs> how long that was. It's the longest subsea cable in the world. But what I was fascinated to see was that it was actually DC, not AC. Yeah, right. So this blows me away. Now I teach physics, folks, and, and part of our syllabus is we teach that uh, yeah, AC is the one you want to use if you're going to transfer power in long distance. Yeah. But anyway, I'm going to let you tell the rest of the story. <laughs> here, well, and that is... My understanding as well, that's my understanding from when I was studying physics back at uni. It was AC was what you used for those transmissions, those long transmissions. And I thought that's why Westinghouse won the won the big argument. But uh, Well, he did win the big argument based on that, except if he could have just had a little bit of technology from today and taken it back to 1892, then he might have lost the battle, or if Edison could have brought mm. that technology back. Because the real reason that they won the battle was it was very easy to transform low to voltage to high voltage with AC, it was very difficult to do that with DC. The reason you use DC for a long undersea cable, as I said, 724 kilometres, and that's not the longest in the world. There's one in China that's over the land, not undersea, 3,300 kilometres over land, and they use DC for that one as well. In fact, most of these long cables are using DC. And again, I went, well, that's a bit confusing. That's not how I understand it. So more research, of course, more rabbit holes to dive down, more Mm. interesting things to find out. But DC is more efficient to transfer at those very high voltages when you're trying to get a lot of electricity from point A to point B. But the reason you don't do it for normal shorter distances is getting the electricity from AC to DC is a bit complicated and a bit expensive. And you really only do it if you're going to have those long transmission lines that makes it worthwhile. One of the other reasons it's better is that if you've got some grids, and in this case here, this subsea cable is connecting Norway across to Great Britain. Now you've got Norway, AC, as you can imagine, around the country for people using in their homes, Great Britain the same. But when you start trying to transfer AC down a long line and then try and get it all in sync, you're trying to get a grid in sync in Great Britain with a grid over in Norway. Yeah, right. That becomes really complicated. And if you get that grid a bit out of sync, you start obviously to get some cancellation of the effective power coming through. So by doing it with DC, they can actually take grids that are AC and not have to worry about trying to get all that in sync. So you basically re-sync it, if you like, at each end, and that's oversimplifying what they do at each end. But that's a way that you can have, because some of these various interconnectors might be countries that are at 60 hertz or 50 hertz. Yeah, That gets complicated. Yeah. <laughs> By doing DC, you're effectively getting rid of that because the transform at each end is ignoring oh, that part of it. Yeah. But this is, getting back to your second part, why is it important to the planet? This is the sixth interconnector that Great Britain has with its European neighbours. And one of the things with Great Britain is they're saying, we've got too much 
electricity that's being generated by fossil fuel, 46%. We're going to get more renewable power. But we haven't got the reliability in our renewable power yet. What can we do about that? These large interconnectors are used so that you can have hydropower in Norway or you can have wind power out of, say, the Netherlands or you can have solar power out of other places in Europe. And all these different technologies are sometimes providing power and sometimes not as much. The wind might be blowing as much, the sun might be shining in the middle of the night. Go figure, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so all of that makes sense. So Great Britain said, we want to basically have a good, smooth power supply. And while we're trying to transition to renewables, we want to be able to rely on some of our neighbouring countries to do that. And so this is part of the whole push towards renewables having more interconnectedness across, in this case, European nations. But Great Britain believe that their 28% that they've got now of renewable power will increase enough by the year 2025 they'll be able to start selling some electricity back down these interconnectors to some of these other countries. For example, when Norway isn't generating electricity with hydropower, they might need some electricity from Great Britain from their wind turbines, and they seem to be focused on mainly wind in Great Britain. So I think that's really important. But what I also love is the idea of what we in this country can do with some interconnectors, because we've got some countries nearby to us that are obviously across the oceans. We've got say Indonesia or Malaysia or the Philippines, even if you want to go far enough, even go as far as China. And so we've got in this country a big chunk of space in the middle of our country. Simpson Desert, for example, is just one of our deserts, 176,500 square kilometres. I reckon there's a bit of space out there that we could use to say solar panels maybe, (laughs) yeah. We know we're putting wind turbines in around this country as well. But just imagine the idea here 1,000 square kilometres is the calculation I did back in 2009, how many solar panels or the area of solar panels to power this country. Mm. You get more than 1,000 square kilometres of solar panels, then let's start powering other countries. So with these subsea cables, why not in Australia have our export, our next big export, obviously we're digging stuff up out of the ground now and selling it everywhere across the world, but we're either going to get to the bottom of those holes or people don't want what we're digging up, which is probably going to happen more than the, the getting to the bottom of holes. But imagine us being an exporter of electricity across to some of these other countries. And when you look at some of those countries, Indonesia, 87% of their power is generated from fossil fuels. PNG, 75%. Singapore, 97% from fossil fuels. The Philippines, 75%. Malaysia, 86%. So we could do these countries a favour by generating power through some form of renewable, again, probably solar, and getting that across some subsea cables. And some of those countries are closer than 724 kilometres. So we might get a bit of credit up. for being green. Oh, yeah. What wow. would that be like? <laughs> we don't get that at the moment, don't they? For <laughs> obvious reasons, much. no. But that's a really, to me, this is really exciting that these subsea cables, again, getting longer, getting mm. more efficient. This one is 515 kilovolts that we're talking about. So you're getting large voltages, they're using DC. Minimal losses in Minimal that. loss because it's such a large voltage. And they've also got this 15 centimetre diameter cable, two of them actually, that they're transmitting the electricity across. So the, the resistance there is very low. So you're not losing too much. And again, with that high voltage, very low current. So you're not losing a lot there in that transmission. But that's, to me, really exciting. And this is the future of generating power somewhere and using it somewhere else. And we could be an in integral part of that solution mm. across the world mm. well at least across our part of the world I did look at New Zealand but New Zealand is actually pretty good with their renewables so they probably don't want to buy our electricity offers at this stage so leave them alone for the moment. So has anyone told Gina Reinhardt about this? Well let's tell a few private because <laughs> the, the government doesn't want to know about it so let's tell a few private rich people about this perhaps, concept. Yeah perhaps she might be able to make some cash out of it. And Matt I've got a question for you what's the worst job on a, a farm a stock farm Go. Well, I've done a little bit of helping out friends. I've never lived on a farm, but when I was growing up, 
I used to go out and get sucked into helping out friends and you think it was just a coincidence, but it seemed to me that more often than not, when you go out to help on the farm over that weekend, fencing. You're doing fencing. Fencing. Exactly right. That was going to be my point exactly. <laughs> like I would muck out a cow shed any day, um, but fencing, it's just so monotonous. It goes oh. on and on and on. And yeah, it's They've got some better day, tools now, but I can remember when I used to have to dig holes to put posts in. I mean, yeah. you, that's not a star pickets and use a star picket driver, but now they've got nice little electric borers that can dig a hole pretty quickly, but yeah, I can remember digging holes, I remember stringing wire and tensioning the wire. And, and you've got to try hard not to look up to see how far you've got to <laughs> no, go. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do that at <laughs> all. It's going to break your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and the, well, the farms I'm talking about when I used to go and help weren't that big. So mm. if you look down the fence line, you probably could see to the end, but there are some farms a bit bigger than that. Well, yeah, if you ring up a farmer in WA, you'll see that uh, might need to help um, fencing his 200,000 hectares or whatever, <laughs> which is just enormous. There's got to be a better way um, as we fumble our way into the third decade of the 21st century. Well, you're right. And so you're going to tell us. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that technology's got a solution. Everything that I talk about, technology's got a solution for. And you're right. If we just give a quick bit of data around some of the, the farming areas in WA and the Pilbara in particular, the Pilbara region will pick on, hmm. the average pastoral lease size there is just about 200,000 acres. So you've, sorry, the average pastoral lease there is 200,000 hectares. Yeah. So you've got a fair chunk of land and if you had the perfect size, if you had a square there, just the perimeter fencing would be 180 kilometres. And they don't support many cattle. You've got one cattle or one cow per 60 hectares. So there's a thing called a cattle unit. Yeah, yeah. So it's a specific size beast, consumes a certain amount of food, etc., etc. So it's called a cattle unit. So you can have one cattle unit per 60 hectares. So you haven't got a lot of cows mm. in a small area. They're spread out over a big area. That's a lot of infrastructure for it not is. enough cows. And yeah. you just want to fence the outside. No, of course you're going to have fences all through the inside. You want to change what paddocks are in, all the rest of it. So it's all pretty complicated. And some of these fences they put up there are expensive. You're talking about $4,000 per kilometre. So you've got three quarters of a million dollars just to do a perimeter fence around one of these properties. So expensive there. And then you get damn nature come along with floods and with sandy soils, all sorts of things. And so then they wreck the fences and you've got to go and start again or just do those sections Mm -hmm. again. So technology has a solution. The solution is a collar around a cow's neck. And that collar, with all the modern technology we've got, has got solar panels on top, so it's got enough elect- uh, sorry, enough light during the day to charge up the batteries in it and keep it going forever. And then you've got a GPS tracker inside the collar, the same as your car or your phone might have. So you know, or the collar knows exactly where it is. You install a base station on the farm so it can transmit a very low-powered signal back to the base station and then you can track exactly where your cattle are, which sounds great. You know where they are. Oh, I know they've gotten through a fence and they've gone to the neighbour's property. Do you know there was a movie made in the 80s? I don't know if you ever saw it. It was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie called Running Man. Anyone who's ever seen this will know what I'm talking about when, and have got an idea where you're going with this, but their collar would blow their head off if they went too far. <laughs> right? So it was, the collar got put on prisoners. There were no fences for the prisoners. They just, if they walked too far, bang, the head got blown off. Probably not a great way to make money out of your cattle, but no, I, no, I get right. the point. In this case, it's a little bit, less destructive than that. Okay. (laughs) What happens is as they get close to that's right, as they get close to the fence line, a noise starts going off. And that noise grows in intensity as they get to the fence line. And then finally, this isn't the part that most people will love, but finally if they go over the fence line they get just a small electric shock in the collar. The same as if they had an electric fence there and they got a small electric shock when they bumped against the electric fence. 
And the cows, within 48 hours, they're pretty smart. They say, hey, I know what happens if I keep walking and these noises going off. Yeah, I'm going to turn around. So yeah, it only right. takes them two days to learn. And then you've got a virtual fence. So you've now got a cow that's got a collar around their neck, $40, so not very expensive. And you can then sit back on your computer as the farmer, draw where you want your fence line to be. That's it. The cows will stay within that area. So I can only assume that once they get that little zap, they don't get all startled and, and just run in whatever direction, <laughs> end up running in the wrong direction, just getting zap, 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 zap. Well, that, that's a good Can't point. Assume. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hope so. When I've read some of the research on this, it seems like they learn that to turn around and go back, and they learn pretty quickly about that. I'm hopeful they don't keep zapping them more and more intensely <laughs> as they get further and further away, but I think the build-up of the noise as well is part of the thing that will bring them back. The RSPCA isn't entirely happy about this. They're not entirely happy about the amount of stress it might create for these animals. But at the same time, it's actually better from a productivity perspective for the farmers. And they can actually treat their land better. Because when you're a farmer that's trying to really look after your land, you might have, for example, some paddocks that you want to leave fallow. You want to keep any cattle off them for a period of time. Let some of the the brush on there regrow. Let some of the, the land recover. But it's pretty hard work to move those cattle around, especially when you've got one per 60 hectares. Mm. Move them around manually. Helicopters are often involved. That gets pretty expensive. And then move them in another paddock. More fences you've got to look after. Whereas with this, you can just redraw on a computer screen where you want the actual fence to be. Wow. So the interesting part here is that Rio Tinto is the one trialling this at the moment. And Rio Tinto, what's going on there? They're a farming company. Why are they involved in this? When Rio Tinto go and buy a chunk of land to do some of their they're mining on, often it's farmland, and they want to keep using the farm for farmland as much as possible. The mine only might take up a small part of it, but they like a buffer zone around it. So Rio Tinto are actually a big farmer as well, and one of the problems they had was that these cattle would get onto mining sites, they'd get through fences that were protecting mining sites, they'd chew on some infrastructure, or they might just get in the road of some of the mining trucks, so it was a bit of a problem for them. This virtual fencing, they believe, will be better to manage the cattle they've got near some of these mine sites. So they've got 100 cows right now, as we speak, with these collars on. The next step of the trial will be 500 cattle, and then if that's successful, they'll go to all of their flock. So it it is interesting. The real issue here, I suppose, is legislation. We've talked about it before, catching up with where the technology is at. So at the moment, most states in Australia, including WA, it's illegal to actually put these on your cattle. They've given permission for Rio Tinto to run this trial, but if a farmer went out there and said, oh, gee, that sounds like a great idea, I'll go and put some on my cattle. No, it's illegal. Hopefully, once the trial is successful and they prove that it's not dangerous to the animals and it all works successfully, then they might... And it works in a similar way that an electric fence already does work, and we have those already, yeah. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah, around the neck might be a little bit different. That might be some of the argument from the RSPCA. I'm not an expert on animal health, so I'm talking about the technology. I don't want to make any comment here about (laughs) animal health on there. But again, I think this is probably safer to keep your cattle in the areas. I suppose the only downside are the predators. You still get some dingoes, some wild dogs. If there's not a fence there, that's not keeping them out. I'm not sure if the farmers have explored putting some collars on some wild dogs or some dingoes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that'd be an option. (laughs) Yeah, look, and also there's there's that romantic imagery that's going to go uh, all all to to pot now that, uh, you know, people riding on horses, they muster cattle. You know, this is the the image that we've been projecting to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, we we do it pretty tough in the outback out here and, yeah, jump on your horse and you muster your cattle or maybe ride in your helicopter and muster your cattle that way. That's really romantic. Well, now that's all... 
Well, uh, one of my favorite sitting on his computer screen. That's right. One of my favorite poems, "Clancy the Overflow" by Banjo oh, Patterson, has that beautiful yeah. romantic notion of exactly that. Riding along the Darling and mm. mustering cattle, and oh, sounds fantastic. Looking at the stars, and oh, now you're right, sitting in. Poets got nothing to write about these days. <laughs> that's right, sitting in an office, drawing some lines on the screen. Go, there you go. That's my new paddock for the day. <laughs> and I woke up a sweat. I wonder if uh, that idea will catch on at daycare centres. <laughs> well, I did wonder that myself. <laughs> Can I control my kids like this? <laughs> Maybe more people than the RSPCA will have something to say about that one, James. <laughs> well, here's another idea that will make some people's heads explode because most people think electric cars are too expensive. But could the transition to EVs actually save Australian money, Matt? Well, Deloitte Access Economics have put out a study and they think it could save us a few dollars and they're talking about half a trillion dollars. What? It just seems incredible, doesn't it? We talk so much about the cost of converting to things like EVs, cost of removing ourselves from the carbon economy. But if you actually look at the holistic view of it, you'll save money. And that's just not me plucking some numbers out of thin air. I say Deloitte had some experts, I'm assuming, on this and spent a couple of days at least on going through this whole process and they've got half a trillion dollars. Now, where does that come from? Well, it's come from things like the reduction in pollution, the reduction in greenhouse gases, the reduction in noise pollution. So if they moved, if we moved to 100% electric vehicles, so this is the best case scenario, 100% electric vehicles within 15 years, so 2035 roughly, all new car sales were EV, which sounds like a long stretch at the moment, mm. but I think we could get there if there was a bit of will to go this direction. That's where they said it would be approximately $492 billion that we would save. And so obviously what they were trying to do is quantify the savings and to see where you'd get those savings from. Now, if they said, well, maybe that's a bit aggressive, maybe we're not going to get there by 2035, maybe let's say, for example, you got there by 2045, So another 10 years down the track, there would still be savings of $335 billion. These are significant numbers in terms of our overall economy. Has someone sent a telegram to um, Scott Morrison about this? (laughs) Maybe the New South Wales Premier and the Prime Minister might need to have a look at this. And again, this is the thing. You just get so hung up on the way things were done in the past. I think government sometimes gets hung up on, oh, we we do this now, we burn coal and we produce power. That's what we've got to keep doing because it'll Mm. be tough if we change. Things are changing all the time. What you've got to do is make sure you're not left behind when these changes occur. And I think this study by Deloitte Access Economics is really trying to do that, to say, let's have a look at if we change, how bad would it be? Actually, it's not so bad after all. Again, it's all these benefits that I think would far outweigh the cost, and that's what they believe as well. When you look at the road funding, for example, they talk about if you suddenly changed from the tax model that we've got now, where you've got a lot of tax generated in petrol sales, for example, which doesn't all go to the roads, by the way, but some of it does. It goes to general revenue and some goes back to the roads. They talk about maybe you would have a billion dollar a year hole in your roads budget if you didn't get all that tax. But this still says even including that billion dollars a year hole, you would still be half a trillion dollars better off over that 15-year time frame because of all the other savings, which then could be put back into roads if you needed to do that. It's just staggering numbers. So better roads as well, better infrastructure. Um, uh, Yeah, this just makes sense. Am I I being crazy here? Well, I'm not sure if they were talking about better roads, but at least the same roads, keeping the roads at the same standard without improving them, but... maintain them and having enough money to go and do all of that. So it's. I think we've just got to get a different mindset here, James. I think we've just got to think differently about things. 
if we keep thinking about things in the old way, then we're just going to keep getting stuck and keeping the same roadblocks, excuse the pun, <laughs> yeah, again, two for the day. <laughs> but I think we've got to think differently because if you do, you then embrace change. If mm. you say, oh, that's the only way I can do it, then you'll keep being stuck in that same old way of doing things. Time to move on, folks. Now, when a product becomes so popular that a significant proportion of the planet want in, then it makes sense that it's only a matter of time that the bad guys are going to exploit the popularity and use it to scam people in a weak moment. Am I right, Matt? What's got the followers of Squid Game on the defensive now? I'm devastated by this. I want this to be true, James. <laughs> As I've said before, I'm not that big a fan of Squid Game. I found it vaguely interesting, a bit too violent for my liking. But look, there was some interest there and look, my family liked it. But there's some emails doing the rounds at the moment saying, get access to the new season of Squid Game. You can be one of the early no. viewers of the new season. Why do they pick see on it me? See before everyone else. That's yeah. right. I'm not sure why I'm so special, but I am pretty special, so I should be <laughs> able to see that new season of Squid Game. So click on here, but then it goes a step further, and this is one that will get me excited, James. You can be one of the background talents, maybe a crowd shot, for example, in Squid Game. Oh, Imagine saying to your mates, hey, see that little dot over there in the corner? That's me. <laughs> that's that's me. me there. So that's pretty cool. All you've got to do, James, is you get this email it opens up an Excel spreadsheet. You fill in your details and send that off. And you just have to wait for the call to come before you'll get your casting call to be on Squid Game. Meanwhile, or alternatively, wait for your identity to be stolen. That's right. Meanwhile, you seem to have some funny things on your computer and your bank account seems to be being drained and all sorts of strange things happens because when you open that Excel spreadsheet, it had a Trojan in it, a Trojan virus, uh. and that infected your computer. And next thing you know, you're sending all your information off to a scammer, and there's no casting call. That's what gets me. Where's my casting call? <laughs> so much disappointment. Ah, oh, it is. And this is the thing. The psychology of some of these scammers is brilliant. Mm. Pick on something that's incredibly popular. How can we associate a scam with that really popular thing? <gasps> People want to be in the background of Squid Game. Will it? Offer them that. It's so inventive to oh. come up with that. <laughs> it is. So oh, I actually am convinced some of these scammers have got some really high-paid psychologists there who yeah. are doing some social engineering to work out why people are going to be attracted to it. And this is another example of that. But oh, I don't know how many times we say it. Just be sceptical, be aware, mm. be alert because the world needs more alerts. It just seems to be one of those things that it's too good to be true. It is. And if you're a bad guy, just ease up, will you? <laughs> Give us a Give break. Give us a break. <laughs> Are you tired of having a weak Wi-Fi signal in the sunroom at the back of your house? Sure, it's the nicest place to sit on Sunday morning, but you just can't stream videos reliably. Or maybe the problem is for you, further out in the back shed. There's work to be done and it's a nice place to be able to stream music or podcasts, but the, the signal is just a bit finicky. Matt, surely we can leave those first world troubles behind as we head into 2022. Well, imagine if you're in your backyard and you couldn't listen to Tech Talk, James. That would be a major That'd problem. Be a problem. It would be. And we need a solution for it. And in fact, I think it happened a few years ago where my daughter lodged a major complaint with her father. She said, Dad, you're into your technology. You seem to know lots about technology. But do you know, in our house, I can't get good Wi-Fi in the toilet. <laughs> now, I didn't want to go into detail about maybe it's not the greatest thing for sanitation. Yeah, put, put down the phone and go to the toilet That's and then right. come back to your phone. Now, why do you take half an hour in the toilet? Now, I've got a question for you, though. Has this got anything to do with vaccinations? <laughs> no. Okay, no. all Should right. Should it have? Okay. No, no, no. All right, okay. We'll Vaccinator. leave that for the conspiracy podcast. Vaccinate her against the toilet, maybe. I'm right, not sure. Okay. 
But that was her major complaint. So, of course, good old tech dad had to go and install a couple of extra wireless access points around the house. So we end up with four now around our house to cover the whole house and a bit of the backyard mm. so I could take away those complaints. One. <laughs> That's right. You'd think that'd be good enough, wouldn't you? But no. So that finally, her first world problem was gone. She could now use Wi-Fi in the toilet. Phew, thank goodness for that. Yeah. What, a, what a good dad I am now. <laughs> the problem we have is at the moment, the two major bands that are typically used in Wi-Fi are the five gigahertz band, which... It's not to be confused with 5G. 5G people yeah. people have told me for years, I've already got 5G. Well, you haven't got it because no. it's not available yet. <laughs> no, no, I have got it, but it's just 5 gigahertz. They see the 5G and think that's what it is. So 5G is great for speed. You get speeds typically up around or theoretical speeds of 1,300 megabits per second. You don't normally get that in the real world, but that's a theoretical speed. The problem is that you typically might, in a normal house, get about 15 metres away from your router. It depends on the construction of your house and all the things that mm -hmm. might be in the road. So that's great for speed, not so great for range. Drop down to the 2.4 gigahertz range or band, the range jumps up. I've found typically around 40 metres is a pretty good range with 2.4 gigahertz, but the speed drops back to maybe 600 megs per second. Mm. What the Wi-Fi Alliance has done is they've certified a new protocol. They've said that we need longer range because Matthew's daughter needs to be able to have Wi-Fi in the toilet. <laughs> I'm sure that was number one priority in and the mind. The people parked out the front of the house um, trying to get your wife, access your Wi-Fi, Absolutely. they've been complaining. And your neighbours too. Yeah, yeah, well, gotcha. Can't yeah. I use your Wi-Fi? Why should I use mine? Why should I have to pay for that? So the new Wi-Fi is called Wi-Fi Halo, spelled capital H-A, capital L-O-W. So the idea with this is that you can get up to a kilometre range. Now that sounds wow. incredible. That's the back paddock. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking about some of those ranges there that you get out of 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. Yeah, so wow. this sounds fantastic. Why haven't we had this already, James? Why yeah. have we waited this long? They've been holding out on us. The problem is that it's able to do that by virtue of the fact that it's got a lower frequency. And, of course, we've talked about it before. Mm -hmm. You drop those frequencies down, you get a longer uh, wavelength, wavelength, so you're yeah. able to get through things a bit easier and extend that range. But, of course, the lower frequency, the longer wavelength means not as much data. So those speeds that I've talked about on 2.4 and 5 aren't going to be available. So given the fact that we all have this need for speed, why would the Wi-Fi Alliance bother with something so pathetic that it wasn't faster than the last one we had? And the real use for Wi-Fi Halo will not be for sitting on the toilet streaming a 4K movie or streaming some 4K series. It will be in connecting all these Internet of Things so at the moment, we're talking about maybe 13.8 billion things are connected across the world. The estimation is by 2025, 30 billion things will be connected. And the first example I think of is I've got a few devices around our house. One of the ones is on a lock on one of the doors. It's connected to Wi-Fi. It's got batteries inside it. It locks via my phone. I can do all sorts of wonderful things with it, be notified, etc. But I find the four AA batteries in it get chewed up about every two months or so. Yeah, right. What needs to be transmitted? A minuscule amount of data needs to basically say either a signal from my phone to say, please open or close, or a signal from the lock to say, I've just been opened or closed. So the amount of data that needs to be transmitted is nothing. It doesn't need 1,300 megabits mm. per second. What it does need is good range and also low power consumption. And they will be the two attributes, the two reasons you would use Wi-Fi Halo rather than one of the 2.4 or 5 gigahertz bands, because you've got that great range and low power usage. So now when you talk about all the things around our house, all the smart home sensors, all the bits and pieces that we want to connect, because we need them connected, obviously. They'll be using, in the future, not yet, but they'll be using Wi-Fi Halo. They'll get you better range, but they'll also have very low power consumption. So those 4AA batteries might last me a year. 
Yeah, very, very cool. Mm. And of course, vaccinations won't improve your Wi-Fi signal either. Oh, look, I'd like it if they could. If that would be so easy, yeah. just have a jab in your arm and now I've got wonderful Wi-Fi. Could we make it that way, please? <laughs> and, and with this new Halo system, um, there's no need for aluminium foil hats or anything like that? No, it's, it's lower frequency. People seem to get really concerned about the higher frequencies for mm. some reason, yeah. especially when you say things like millimetre wave, that gets people really stirred up. <laughs> they then start to think suddenly it's going to be microwaves coming out at us. Yeah. But again, it all comes down to the power that we're using for all these. Every frequency could be deadly if you put enough power into it because it mm. generates some heat. So we can heat up our body if we go zapping or zipping enough power into ourselves. But obviously these are low enough power. They're not doing that. But I can see this being used in a whole range of areas Internet of Things we use to monitor things like bridges. You build a bridge, you want to know whether it's deforming slightly or when it needs maintenance or even equipment mm. out in the field, a mining company, for example. All these little things I can see using Wi-Fi Halo. But even in a farm situation where I know farms that have got sensors on various pumps around their paddocks or various irrigation units, all these things I want to be able to monitor remotely. You don't have to go out onto the farm and drive around and look at all these things. That's so yesterday. But again, this sort of Wi-Fi Halo one Wi-Fi connection point could cover maybe 300 hectares. So again, you might have a farm bigger than 300 hectares, but multiple of these points could cover those radius around each one of a 300 hectares. So that sounds pretty exciting and changing a whole landscape. A lot of those Internet of Things devices connected now are connected to the mobile phone network. But again, they use more power and it gets expensive yeah. when you're paying a subscription each month. Just having one Wi-Fi device like this, I think this is really opening up the world for all of these new exciting things. Yeah, really tidy things up there. Yeah, I think so. But let's kick off with a story that's going to get you all smiley-faced, clapping hands, love heart, thumbs up, champagne cork. If a picture tells a thousand words, then an emoji's got to be good for maybe half a dozen or so at least. Have a think about it. Do you have a default emoji that you always go to? That that go-to that punctuates your chat with a sign-off that says just what you want to, wanted to say every time? Well, the world has spoken, people, and you'll be pleased to know that the favourite emoji around the world is, wait for it, face with tears of joy. A round of applause, please. Woo. Matt, yet again, the poop has been forsaken. It's been overlooked once more, even after 2021 and the year that that was. you think surely that would make some sort of rocketing up the list, maybe oh, even threaten there's those There's no top justice <laughs> for the poop. <laughs> And it's not something you can step in either, so surely it's a bit friendlier than the normal poop. <laughs> but it is interesting. I actually sat back and thought about this. The Unicord Consortium, who regulates what emojis we are allowed to have on our smartphones. I think that's world. fantastic that we've got emoji regulator. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and they approve the submissions they get each year, and they approve new ones and remove some from the list. Actually, I don't know how many they remove from the list. They seem to add more and more. 3,663 emojis are currently in the approved list. Oh, so I don't know how many have been removed. Wow. It sounds like more adding <laughs> than removing, doesn't it? But I actually sat back and thought, you might actually get a bit of a snapshot on what's happening around the world just by looking at the emoji usage. Now, there's lots of ways hmm. to judge what's happening in the world. You could look at inflation figures. You could look at affordable housing or homelessness, all sorts of indicators. Hmm. But maybe just we look at emojis and see how people are traveling just from their emoji usage. A real social gauge right there. I think so, yeah. yeah. And maybe I'm going a bit too far there, way outside my area of expertise. But when you think about it, you've got 6.05 billion smartphones in use across the world. So you've got a fair snapshot. It's not like mm. you've just got a little tiny percentage of smartphones being used. So that's a fair old percentage of the current population of the world. And then emojis, people are using emojis all the time. So as you said, face with tears of joy. I never use that. 
That's no. one. I would use a smiley face regularly, but face with tears of joy seems yeah, look, a bit over the top. And I, I throw out the question there. Is it a, they're a bit of an exaggeration? How many people are really that happy that they've got <laughs> tears of joy that much that it's going to make number one on the list? Well, apparently, it's mm, a, it's a really big one. Lots of people crying with happiness. Number two is red heart. So I can understand that one, red heart. A nice little love message you're sending to someone. So I can imagine mm. that's very high on the usage. But then I actually went back and I said, let's look through the top 50. We've had some terrible things that have happened over the last couple of years. And this is a indicator list as of the end of 2021. Right. The last time they did the rankings was the end of 2019. For some reason, 2020 was skipped. I'm not sure exactly why. And so you think in that time frame, wow, there's going to be some really dour or down or sad emojis rocketing up the list because we've had a pretty tough two years. But we haven't, according to emojis. When you mm. look at the emoji there usage, things have actually been okay. So to give you an idea, loudly crying face has moved up from eight to five. Right? Loudly so, crying face. So <laughs> uh, yeah, a picture does tell a thousand words. Uh, the fact that these have got a, a, an actual name, but I guess we can't we can't um, show them over an audio podcast. Correct. And, but these are official names. These, these are, are the, official names. These are the Unicode. Loudly consortium. crying face, right. Yeah, okay. Now that, that's moved up. So you think, well, that makes sense because well people have been sad. Yeah. But crying face, not loudly crying face, just good old-fashioned crying yeah, face, right. that one's dropped from 20 to 41. But when I look through the top 50... I struggled to find anything else that was even vaguely sad. So yeah. most of the top 50 are happy and things like... So tell me, the smiley face, just normal smiley face, yeah. that's got to be up there, surely? No, it's way down the list. It's, I don't really? Even have, I don't even know where that is at the moment. I haven't even looked that one up to see the where it is. smiley face and thumbs up is my, my go-to. Thumb, yeah, thumbs up. So that's, that's certainly in there. Thumbs up actually... Went from ten to four, oh, so what it, a relief. it jumped up. So yeah, again, yeah. that's There's a, justice. That's right. Smiling face with hearts went from sixteen to eight. Party popper blasted oh, up. Excuse the pun. From thirty-five <laughs> to eleven. Even birthday cake. I don't understand this one. People presumably had the same number of birthdays in the last two years as they did yeah, before but that. I think people are just tired of typing out happy birthday. Maybe. Yeah. Well, it jumped from 113 to 25, so a big jump there. Partying face. Presumably not many people have been partying, but maybe they've been partying in a virtual sense. It jumped up from 78 to 30, and even balloon floated up from 139 to 48. Mm. So if you looked at some of those, you'd go, well, wow, the world's been really happy over <laughs> the last two years. So maybe people have been kind of people coping with out it. of lockdown. Well, mm. but surely it's not just, just the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah right. that's right. But then I looked for some specific ones. I went, what are the ones that are specifically related to the lockdown, pandemic, some of the things that have been happening? And it was a bit of a struggle. Hot face, so presumably meaning that you've got a temperature, mm. went up from 236 to 83. So, okay, oh, there yeah. we go. And woozy face. I'm going oh, to use right. that only because I know it now exists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woozy face wobbled on up from 176 to 96. But even medical mask, with a, a face with medical mask, went from 186 to 156. So not a huge jump. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So anyway, just very briefly, some other ones that I, I thought were significant. I looked for other ones that made big differences in terms of going up or down. Double exclamation mark went up from, sorry, it dropped from 36 to 113. Sleepy face dropped from 68 to 188. Oh. Soccer ball, don't know why. Mm, I thought maybe Soccer World yeah. Cup or something, but soccer ball dropped down from 131 to 235. Speaking head from 120 to 277. And airplane, I can't understand this one. Okay, airplane dropped out of the sky. It went from 167 <laughs> to 292. And the play button went down from 177 to 309. I don't yeah. really know why the play button dropped. Right. Big moves on the way up. I don't understand this one. If any listeners can tell me why, there were two that just 
no idea, no logic. Rabbit face hopped up from 346 to 137. Now, hang on. This isn't the yellow face with the buck teeth. No. This is, this is a rabbit face. This is a face. rabbit face. Right. Okay, right. And that's its official name is rabbit face. And rabbit, which is its official name as well, went up from 581 to 211. So I asked some kids last night at the party, I asked my kids, <laughs> what's the significance of rabbit? Why is rabbit suddenly a much more popular emoji than it was two years ago? And they all went, huh? <laughs> In only a way a teenager <laughs> but can. But what you have done is you've just increased the amount of usage of <laughs> rabbit face uh, right. just with that conversation. Next year it'll be up in the top 50, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> now, cold face went up from 370 to 159 shopping cart i get that one lots of people doing mm. being online shopping 785 to 196 cupcake went up 457 rankings from 691 what? to 234 well and done, cupcake <laughs> that's right good on you and the strangely specific bridge at night I don't know why that would be really popular, but it's a, it's very specific, isn't it? Most of the oh, popular emojis romantic. are very generic. Well, maybe. <laughs> it went up from 985 to 388. And then Microbe, I suppose, is the only other one I could find that was a pandemic-related one. It went up from 1086 to 477, but still mm. not really that high. The other couple of ones were the most popular emoji in certain categories. So in the person sport category, person doing cartwheel – was the number one person sport category. Now, it's not an Olympic sport, or though maybe it should be, yeah. but person doing cart, well, obviously, very happy. Again, yeah, it's that yeah. happiness signal. Doing backflips. And yep. flags. Flags is the real loser in all of this. Yeah. Flags is the most or the least popular emoji group of all the emoji groups. Well, do you know, when you were saying, um, yeah, something's got to get cut, I was thinking to myself, those flags. Those flags. <laughs> the flags have 258 emojis in the category. So it's the most yeah. populated category yeah. and the least popular category. So maybe... And it's there just in case. Maybe, but maybe we're not as nationalistic mm. as we all think we are. We all think we are very patriotic to mm. whatever country we come from, but we don't actually use our flag that often. So maybe we're not as patriotic as we think. So interesting little snapshot. But the exciting part for all of us is... You can make a submission. You can, I can, any organisation can make a submission to the Unicode Consortium and say, here is an emoji that I've been desperately crying out for. Here are the reasons why you need this emoji. And the Unicode Consortium will sit around, go harumph harumph, smoke some cigars and say, you know what, these extra emojis have made the list. And how cool would that be if an emoji that you put in was the one that made the list next year? Just to add that little bit of tone uh, of emotion uh, yeah. to to whatever message, because, you know, SMSs and uh, whatever, they uh, they don't have that, that tone. It's hard to read tone. It is. Absolutely yeah. right. And that's where emojis feel that and that's tone. that's where I need a rabbit face. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've got to work out why. I need to find out why. Someone tell me, what's the rabbit face all about? Well, it betrays my emotion right now. <laughs> and that is how season one unfolded. 26 hours reduced to two and a half hours and building the excitement for season two. Set your clock for 9am every Monday morning when each new episode will be available. We will continue to deliver high-quality, well-researched tech topics that are relevant today and into tomorrow. We hope you enjoy listening, and all we ask in return is for you to follow, rate, and review. We also welcome feedback via email to ask at techtalk.digital. Have a wonderful 2022, and we thank you for allowing us to be part of your tech life. <laughs>